hello, and welcome to Movie the Musical, a podcast about movies that have been turned into musicals. I am your host, Ben Kay. We are here to investigate, interrogate, and celebrate the art of adaptation from screen to stage. We are a podcast that loves questions. And today's question is, which of little Edie's outfits most resonates with you? It's like a BuzzFeed <laughs> quiz. Just like a... The head wrap and the American flag, except a, for the American a, flag I mean, is burning. I mean, icon. Iconic. I, mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for the all red, just like that all... I mm-hmm. forgot when she wears that. Um, it's uh, House We Live In. It's when she has the American flags, which... Sure, yes. It's so good. <laughs> My God. I mean, she... There, I there's on the Criterion Blu-ray there are like some like special features where they like interview like fashion designers and they're like yeah this was like a huge inspiration for like mm-hmm. so like people would like steal or like borrow like inspiration from this film and that's kind of wild <laughs> I mean it's genius yeah. I mean I get it Mm-hmm. It's very it's, interesting to me that this musical, not to jump like right in, but do there, it. Is, there were some comments that I noticed in some of the reviews of the musical where they were talking about like how easy it would have been to adapt Grey Gardens into like something that's crazy campy because that's very mm-hmm. much like what the movie inspired. So the idea that they would take this movie and really try to like meet it where it began as opposed to like the culture that it later inspired, I think is a... It's a challenge, and I'm gl- ultimately glad that they went that direction because while it can't be by completely fabricating an <laughs> yeah. entire story of Joseph Kennedy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, she she, she like apparently ru- it, it was rumored that there was an engagement, or like she started a rumor that they were briefly engaged. I don't, but yes, yeah. they are. It is essentially pulled from whole cloth. That he entire. was one of the ones. He was a person that she met only once. But there was nonetheless a rumor started by someone, might be her, that they were engaged. But there isn't any evidence to support anything factually in the first act. Um, God, absolutely fascinating humans. Of course, today's episode is about the 1976 film, Grey Gardens, uh, filmed by Albert and David Maisels and edited by Ellen Hovder, Muffy Meyer, and Susan Fromke, and its subsequent 2006 musical adaptation of the same name with a book by Doug Wright, lyrics by Michael Corey, and music by Scott Frankel. And today's guest is, as I will say, on the record, as soon as I knew that this podcast was going to be a thing, I knew that I had to have this wonderful human on. Uh, They are a Chicago-based director and writer and video essayist. Uh, you can find them on YouTube with just a brilliant series of video essays about theater, musicals, the live performing arts. Um, the wonderful Zach Barr is here. Welcome to the welcome to the room. Welcome to the Zoom room. Thank you for having me on. This is I'm very excited to be here. I will yes, and I will say so. As a, at the time of this recording, Zach Barr's uh, most recent. Uh, video is about uh, the Ratatouille TikTok musical because, of course, it's still in our dreams, in our hearts, um, and it's a, a wonderful video. And like, I'm like most of most of Zach's videos, I will I will gush about them all day. I, I said this before we started uh, the episode, but I'll say it again. I feel like their their video essays are some of the most comprehensive and most entertaining. Uh, first of all, just in general, but especially about dissecting uh, the world of theater. Um, other videos include uh, the phenomenon of Pirates of Penzance, 
uh, the the Avatar Cirque du Soleil show, which is a thing that existed. Um, and then your the whole series uh, entitled "And Now They Sing." Um, what what it, I'm sure you have a more succinct way of of describing what that series is. Yeah, so essentially, and now they well now uh, and now they sing is the title of the YouTube channel. So if you look it up, Amazing. that's what you'll Great. find. Um, the initial it began as an initial mini series of just six episodes, and that was originally it was like that was called and now they sing, and then it became a, the title of the channel. It's kind of like how Star Wars was like it just expanded, <laughs> they just bumped it up. Sure, yes. Um, that's the only comparison that could be reasonably made between what I do and Star <laughs> Wars. Um, although I guess it came out in groups of six. There's that, but um, hey. uh. But, yeah, so basically the, the initial six episodes, which were recorded at the beginning of 2019, um, actually very end of 2018, but it came out in 2019, um, were about musicals that you don't know based on things you do know, such as the fact that there are musical adaptations of Breakfast at Tiffany's and, um, and A Doll's House, but a sequel, and um, Happy Days, and the one that um, Brand didn't know, which was Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, which did happen in 2012. Um, but the most recent series kicked off in the summer uh, with the Pirates of Penzance video, and since then it has... I try to cover as much, um, as wide a, a net as possible within the performing arts. I, a lot of them are about musicals right now, um, but I am beginning to expand out into more um, non-musical content, into doing opera, and I know that there's a play that I want to talk about that's not a musical. Um, and I did really enjoy that the video on the Avatar Cirque show, which is called Turuk, the First Flight. Um, I really enjoy it. Beautiful it's my, pronunciation. It's one of my... <laughs> you, you, would be, you would be honestly, like ashamed at how much of the Navi language I had to learn to make that video happen. Um, but it is, I actually really like that video. I think that it's, I really like my, the writing on that one is solid. I despise the audio quality in that video because for some reason I recorded it in a wind turbine, but um, it, uh, it happens. But I'm happy with that video. So go check it you out. Sometimes have to record. I would say if, if I were to pin a theme on your videos, I feel like you dissect theatrical phenomenon of all mm. different types I feel like, you know, you've done like an episode on the two Wild Party uh, musical mm-hmm. theater adaptations. You did a video on the the quote unquote stunt casting and the musical Waitress, an episode that mm-hmm. we will be covering, of course, at some point on this podcast. Oh, um, so into that. Oh, yes. Um, but yeah, I feel like you, you're, and you've done an episode on uh, the Nut, a video on the Nutcracker and sort of how yeah. that became. Yeah. So I feel like you've. You take these things that's that all w- six right there, yeah, <laughs> amazing. And I yeah. feel, but I feel like you, you take sort of yeah these sort of like phenomenon that sometimes we don't even think about that are like so ingrained in mm. our culture and really dissect them and sort of like figure out like mm. how they happened and why they happened and what they say about the way that we operate within our culture and the way that we operate in the world of theater. And I love them, so yeah. I, I will we'll plug it again at the end of the episode. But yes, just a thank you. I suppose that's a good succinct. The only thing I'll 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 say as far as like a unifying theme that I attempt, although I suppose that that is a, is a pretty solid thing of it, is when I am talking about them, I try to focus on one particular production of a show as opposed to just like talking about the wider trend. Like I wanted to do a video on the Nutcracker, which I did. Um, but I made sure the original swath of that video was going to be much more like comprehensive of trying to be like all the Nutcrackers. But first of all, that's way too many productions. So I decided to just be like, let's just focus on the Balanchine Nutcracker, which is the one that everyone knows or knows without knowing that they know. And mm-hmm. then like kind of branch off from there. So everything tries to center on a particular single production of a show. But today we're not cracking nuts. No, no, <laughs> we are. <laughs> We, seamless, we this is seamless not. transition. Like, <laughs> yeah. How do we get we're from not. Nutcracker to Grey Gardens? Who nuts, knows? That's how. 
Oh, oh no, 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 that's fine. I get it. Um, so this is, oh, this is such a fascinating episode that I've been sort of like racking my brain about for the past few days. Um, mm. this is, we, so previously on this, on this show, on this podcast series, Movie the Musical, we've talked mm. about Shrek, we've talked about Legally Blonde, and we've talked about Smiles of a Summer Night. Um, three narrative features that were translated to the stage in their own successful and or unsuccessful ways. And I would say, for the most part, those three musicals had a pretty clear blueprint of where to start. They were based off of narrative films, and, and I would say in each of those instances, they pretty much kept the bones of those stories, of those scripts. Um, some of them messed with them a little, some of them just copied and pasted the script over, but for the most part, they were pretty true and they had just, like, a clear narrative, uh, sort of, like, one-to-one to make. Great Gardens, of course, is a documentary. And, th- and this isn't going to be the only documentary we cover. We'll get into that a little later. But mm-hmm. there is something, sort of, the, quest- the, the larger question of this episode, other than uh, just the brilliant uh, fashion uh, icon iconography of the, of the Beatles, um, mm-hmm. is what happens when you take... A documentary, especially a documentary that is so loose in form and so observational in form, and try to make a book musical out of it. Because I'm like, you could make a strange, loose, experimental evening of life performance that is inspired by the world of the Beals. It'd be a, ve- it'd be, it'd, I don't know what it would be. But it would certainly immersive. Yes, it yeah, may. I, was, I, was I could just have a it. bunch of cats in a disgusting <laughs> building that smells terrible, and people have to hang out in there. I feel like you do. That's the a, whole night. To me, if I were adapting Grey Gardens, if this musical didn't exist, even if it does, I would say that my ideal adaptation of Grey Gardens, the documentary, into a theater production would be basically Sleep No More. Like you would sure. you'd take a big old house, you divide <laughs> it into like four quadrants, and you'd have two actresses in each quadrant playing the Beals, mm. and then you'd, like, go from scene to scene, and they'd be just living in the house. Um, that feels to me like it's the best, like, encapsulation of the, the style of the documentary, because it is so, like, more... I mean, they literally say it in the intro to the script. Like, it's it's more of a character study than it is a story. Yes. Um, and it's... which I mean deeply fascinating. Yeah. And again, just sort of just, like, throwing it, like, right out of the top. I love the documentary. I love, <laughs> love, love this film. Like, it is... I, and I'm just a huge, just like lover of documentary in general. I think it is just like mm. such an underappreciated form of visual storytelling, um, just storytelling in general. And I think there's so many different facets of the genre, whether it's like informational, observational. There's sort of like mm-hmm. the, the just the ethics of documentary filmmaking in general is just like its own realm. And I'm sure we'll get into it, especially with this film, where people mm-hmm. were very quick to sort of shout out the potential exploitation of its subject matter. But yeah, it's just, it is so wild to, for someone to watch this movie, which yeah, is so formless in its, in its construction and think, well, how, but, Mm -hmm. but what, how do we make a story? How do we make a narrative? Um, So let's, so let's start at the very beginning. I'm not going to make the obvious musical theater joke. No, no, no. I I say never. Let's try to do this entire podcast. Just try to never never do it. it. You're going to have a guest that jumps in. I'm I'm being very um, 
I'm trying to be polite and not just bulldoze <laughs> through with the, with the reference, but... Look, every, every other reference, but not that one. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Um, the Maisel brothers, Albert and David Maisels, uh, prolific uh, documentarians. They were known for Salesman, uh, a documentary about Bible salesmen, and Gimme Shelter, a uh, Rolling Stones concert documentary. And those, I mean, and... Including this one, I would say, like, these three are sort of considered, like, seminal pieces of documentary filmmaking. And all for different reasons. Like, yeah, like, one is, one is, I mean, I would say they're all, I'm gonna keep using this word, but they are all observational. They are all fly on the wall, just capturing the essence of whatever their subject matter is, um, without, I mean, and I say without influence, but obviously, I mean... There is influence because uh, the subject matter is know that there is a camera in their face. I mean, that is always the most that's always the most fascinating thing about documentary. It's like, what is the role of the subject knowing that there is a camera following them around? I mean, obviously, in Great Gardens, like, OK. And also <laughs> for the for the purposes of clarity, Little Edie and Big Edie, that, that yes. is how I would like to refer to these two characters, just so we can can keep this thing straight for all uh, for all our sakes yeah i know but yes i think and obviously like little edie like is is conversational i mean like and she is like almost performative i mean that's that's, and that's such a huge part of the film is sort of just like how mm-hmm. these two women are just like so they desire an audience so much and it's like and i w- and i don't think that makes them inauthentic in the film Argue, mm-hmm. You could argue that it brings out more truth for them because that, that's just who they are. They are just people who want so much to be seen by others that they are their truest selves in front of an audience. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it was this... It's that performative nature makes Little Edie seem so young. Yes. It make, it's a very childlike... It makes you think of like being at the laundromat or something and like a little kid that doesn't get enough attention like, standing up and, like, bugging the one stranger in the room just because they're so starved for it. And then, like, a show mother being like, show it your move, tap, do a time step, you know? <laughs> it's, and yeah, I mean, and they, so, for those who haven't seen it, and I, first, yeah, again, like, right off the bat, just go find Grey Gardens. It is just a wonderful, fascinating, re- really tragic piece of filmmaking. Um, so... Big Edie, um, because both of these women are named Edith Bouvier Beale. Um, I believe uh, uh, Big Edie's also has is Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale, um, but she is the aunt of Jackie Onassis, who would eventually be uh, Jackie O, Jackie Kennedy. Um, Jackie Kennedy, yeah. First and lady they, of the United States, Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and they. <laughs> And so, yeah, and they were sort of these, like, figures of high society. And Grey Gardens, like, in the... When when the first act of the musical, like, it's set in the 40s, yeah, it was this home where, like, Howard Hughes would hang out and sort of just, like, the rich upper crust of, like, the the East Coast... Uh, yeah, just, like, the high society would, would go. A bunch of eye emoji people. You know <laughs> what I mean by the eye emoji? Like, <laughs> Illuminati-connected skull and bones types are going... Sure. <laughs> Right. Some blue check mark people showing up at the house. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. 
I don't, I don't, I'm just, I don't want to fucking get into Twitter drama on this podcast. <laughs> Not for me. No, thank mm-hmm. you. Um, either way. So yeah. And so they were sort of these like upper crust, uh, folk. Eventually things fall into disarray. Um, there's, there's clearly some mental illness within this family. I would say, especially within big Edie. Um, she becomes essentially just like unable to take care for her of herself, and so her daughter, uh, little Edie, moves in, and they've just been in this, and they are just like, at the time of the documentary. So it's, and I'll say for people who are yelling at me from home that I said this is a 1976 film. It premiered at the New York Film Festival in September '75, but it was released officially in February '76. For all you sticklers out there care about these things it's like call it well, it's like well i guess i call nomadland a 2020 film even though it isn't being released on hulu until as of this recording this friday whatever mm-hmm. that's the jargon that i care about um yeah. but either way at the time this filming yeah like they'd been living in squalor and like that this whole like the what was it like the new york city like or like the new york department of health like condemned yeah, the them of health yeah, the Department of Health came in a couple years actually before the documentary happened. So the, the version we see in the documentary is actually the cleaned up version. Which is um, terrifying. The New York Board of Health basically determined that it was unsafe for human, uh, like you couldn't live there. It was yeah. it was so unsafe. And so Jackie, I think Jackie herself came in and was like, yes. I'm going to help fund like a cleanup effort. And so she did that. And then it by the time that the Maisels came back in, it, it had recluttered itself. Um, not to the same degree, but certainly like it was, it was emblematic of what, what it was before. I mean, they got, they got raccoons hanging around. They got mm-hmm. little raccoons. Little holes in the wall. Yeah. yeah. It's, oh yeah. So yeah, the, the film starts with like these like images of news clippings sort of like to give you context, um, before we just jump into the mazels. Just, yeah, it's like pretty much they've got these like portable cameras, sound equipment. They're just walking through the house, just like observing these, I mean, characters. I mean, obviously they are real people, but they are just like, I mean, that's, I'm sure, just a word that is often associated with the Beals. They're just such characters. And that's, I would assume, sort of like why the film took off. It's just like, it is, it is like early reality television. It's kind of terrifying. Like, this is like such a precursor for like fucking, like the real housewives, honestly. <laughs> like, it's just like watching these, these women just like yelling at each other. And, but it's like, Again, it's like it's 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 sad, and like that is like the biggest. I think after after my wife and I watched it, I think we just looked at each other. We were just like, "Well, that was sad." <laughs> and it's, but I, yeah. So and yeah. So there's cats everywhere. There's food everywhere. There's clutter everywhere. The greenery has just like grown out of control. Um, and so and yeah. So little little Edie, she's again. She like fashions these. Again, iconic outfits just from, like, pantyhose and just, like, what whatever else, whatever other materials. And she, like, has... Yeah, like, s- scarves and, like, kitchen, like, the, the the cords from drapes and things. Like, it's all fashioned together yeah. um, as a protest statement, as she describes it. <laughs> Which I love the fact that that's something that they locked onto as being, like, well, that needs a song. Like, not just letting it exist. Um, yes. But being, like, this is not only our song, this is our kickoff to the entire world which is in act two which is a really yeah, smart yes. move i think on their part mm-hmm. oh yeah no they they and yeah we'll pin it down a little more i i am mm-hmm. i would say like 
the moments that they picked to turn into songs, I'm like, yep, yeah, that makes sense. Like they, mm-hmm. they, I would say didn't like choose silly or like inappropriate moments to 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 make sing. I was like, no, these are mm-hmm. that they are moments that sort of like make sense for the world that uh, that we are in. Um, mm-hmm. It's and again, and it is do yeah. I think they do a good job of not only I agree that like they pick the right moments to musicalize, but also I think that they do a very good job of like, and this is a weird thing with composition in musicals is they do a good job of putting the vocal range for the roles in what feels like a speaking tone in the second sure. act. Um, so a lot of stuff with Big Edie is like relative, like she's an alto or something. It's relatively low, so like she can roll directly from dialogue into the thing. And you don't have like the divide that sometimes happens. Uh, with more performative musicals, which, like, gives the whole show in the second act, definitely not the first act, but that's, I think, the intention. The whole show feels like it's kind of the the same, like, lo-fi vibe as the movie, um, even when it's going into music. Um, So then when the big moments, like Another Winter in the Summertown, and honestly parts of Revolutionary Costume, when they do go big, like, it feels like it's earned that moment because everything up to that point has been relatively restrained. Absolutely. Um, It is... It's... I mean, yeah, we'll we'll get into how how clever the music is and the lyrics are later. Yeah, yeah. Cause that is sort of like the, I was like, Oh, you're very, you're very proud of yourselves. And I, and you, sh- and you're, maybe you should be, um, it is, <laughs> yeah. it's, so, but it's, it's tough to talk about the film be- because it is so formless. Right. It's just like stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that's pretty much all the, the table setting, right. It's just like, we are just like mm-hmm. with these two women. Um, Edie, little Edie goes to the beach. Sometimes, uh, we meet some other, we meet, uh, Brooks, who is the uh, the gardener? He, I mean, he only appears once, I believe, in the in the he film. Is once at the beginning, yeah, and then he disappears. Yes, and then of course um, there's there's Jerry, who is their <laughs> their young their young boy, who is like uh, having to like yeah. do odd jobs around the house. He's going to install a wash a washing machine. Got the like the, got the that those New York like at my my the Long mm. Islander who's still uh, kind of dormant in me was 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 popping out every time I was watching this film. I was like, oh, God. Mm-hmm. Um, which was what, yeah. It, it, oh, British person trying she, to do a Long Island accent. The moment in the, the moment in the documentary that stands out to me, like, not necessarily for any, like, thematic reason, just because it, it was the moment in rewatching it that I was like, it really started to feel like like we were getting real truth out of it. Not that we yeah. weren't before, but whatever. The moment that stood out to me was the, the bit where she comes out after Jerry has, like, a, like talked about the washing machine, and she, like, whispers, like, directly to the camera, like, in the, in the really thick action. She's like, he's moving in. Like, he's got a he's got yeah. washing machine. This is how it starts. Like, that's just, it's such a clear indication of the way that her mind works that she's just, like, putting all the pieces together when she only has, like, one leg. I think that's a big part of the way that Little Edie's mind works is that she, not to, like, psychoanalyze, but I think that she, sure. she has a thing where she, like, she has the whole like a bunch of puzzle pieces and she only has the edge done. And then she's just throwing things into the middle being like, it goes there, it goes there. Like I know what the picture is. Um, and that to me is like one of the most emblematic moments, which is why I feel like it's a a disappointment in the musical that we get that moment. We get Jerry introducing it, but then it's like another song or two before we get her reaction to it. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about the way that they organized. Cause I do, I I agree with you that I think that the documentary is, it's nonlinear in its, like thematically it moves around a bunch, but I do think that there's a reason to why it's organized the way it is. Oh, sure. Um, and the musical messes with a lot of that. Not all of which doesn't work, but it certainly is. Yeah. A, it's a choice around what they, what they put where for sure. To and give it a little bit more structure. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll say just like moments 
moments that they did choose to musicalize. And again, it's like, and I think just like really smart stuff. You know, there's the moment where they're they're in their bedroom, the the two Edies, and they're listening to mm-hmm. uh, Norman Vincent Peale on the radio. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like this where he's like, um, you have to try, really try, and think, really think, and believe, really believe. And yeah, yeah, he's he, he's the the ridiculous man who wrote the the right the power of positive thinking. That was sort of like his big like best selling mm-hmm. book, which is like again like really such like a tragic thing to think about. It's like, well, yeah, like I I guess these women can be thinking positively, but like they're still. They're still trapped in this situation. Like, Mr. Mm. Mr. Peel, I don't think your your words of wisdom are really going to help in this situation. Um, mm. There's that really it's sad... Interesting. Bu- yeah. No, you go. You finish with your... Well, I was just going to uh, move to the, the, very tra- the very sad birthday party they have for Big Edie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so sad. I mean, she's... <laughs> she's I mean, I, yeah, she's, she's doing her best. But I... I don't know. It's... I... You you really get to know these subjects so well. You really there mm. it is there is an intimacy to it where I was just like I felt I mean, even like the moments of happiness, I was just like it's it's happiness with to bring it to an image an image they use in the musical, it's like image it's like happiness within a birdcage, right? It's like it's just like these mm-hmm. two women who are able to find these moments of joy and wonder, but they are just like they are trapped in this decrepit mansion. And like, it like, I gotta say that part feels pretty relevant. The whole being trapped, in sure, home yeah, and isolated yes. feels fairly relevant <laughs> in 2021. <sighs> and being like, we, the idea of being like, well, we're gonna get out soon. Like, we just as soon once we get out. Like that idea of being like, well, once we get out. Like after I do, here's all the plans I have, and being like, oh god. Although I I'm don't ki- think it's quite the same. I'm kind of surprised yeah. that there hasn't been a resurgence of. Grey Garden's imagery, right? You, yeah, right. That that yeah. kind of makes sense for a for a pandemic quarantine moment. Mm. I, I I guess it isn't seeped into the the wider pop culture mm. enough to to blow. This is no. this is where we're I mean, starting. Even something like even something like a like a doll's house. Like I would you expect something sure. like that's a very. I mean, you get a lot of birdcage imagery and posters for that. Like it's a similar like oh I'm trapped in this domestic life and I feel like I need to get out of it like the whole idea and it takes place at Christmas like I feel like it would be the kind of thing that like right now as we you know as we record and there's a foot of snow outside in Chicago sure. <laughs> it feels like it's relevant all re- relevant all over again I, I this is this is the start of the campaign people start making memes start dressing <laughs> up in your in your best in your best little Edie wrap your sweatpants around your head like yeah. get your get your looks out <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's what yes. I dress like when I'm not on it, Zoom, actually. It, yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I figured as much. Invite a raccoon into your house. Like, just make it. Just get your best Grey Gardens on. Um, as much. That's, probably, that's really the, that's yeah, really the problem uh, with Grey uh, Gardens. Bran is rapping. Uh, I just found some faux fur nearby, so we'll just use <laughs> that. I think that's really the problem with Grey Gardens. The problem with Grey Gardens is it's not mimetic enough. We need There's not enough dank memes in it. And <laughs> That is yes. If I were able to travel back in time, yeah, Maisel's great work. Can you just get some more dank meme content in yeah, this film? Grab Doug Wright be like Doug Wright pitching the idea to Frankel and Corey and be like, you need to put more dank memes in this. And he's like, it's 2006. I have no idea what that means. I'm like, listen, get some bottom text going. Get an impact font. Yeah, exactly. So I I found an interview on, of course, a very reputable web, web, reputable website, musicaltheaterreview.com. It seems to be some, like, in- England-based, uh, like, theater mm-hmm. blog um, where they interview Doug Wright 
uh, Scott Frankel and Michael mm-hmm. Corey. And so there was a wealth of information. And they were sort of like, then they, they really talk about the germination of the musical. I don't want to jump right into it, mm-hmm. but just sort of to tie back to, like, they found sort of like this great poetry within little Edie, which I think is so true. Like she has that, like, she has that like line mm. where she says like, it's difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. And I'm like, this bon mot that you just pulled mm. from your, br- like they are again, like it's, you can say what you want about them performing for the camera. I, I truly genuinely think that this is just who they were because they were performed. Mm-hmm. Like they just are, were though unfortunately they both passed away but they were both mm. performers that's just who they were camera or no honestly i bet this is just how they would react just even if the measles weren't being in that society too i think that whole like presentational i mean that we see a little bit of in the first act but i feel like mm. that very high society like american royalty that those i emoji people exist in there is so much especially in mid-century so much a level of performance and, uh, I don't know, putting on airs kind of that yeah. lends itself to that. I love, I'm, I'm just picking, I, I, I took notes, uh, I'm just picking moments mm-hmm. that I really liked. I really love uh, Big Edie making corn in her bed. <laughs> just fucking, okay. I feel like that's another, Is like, very re- relatable it's thing. It's a strangely intimate scene. Like, you wouldn't expect it to be so, like, a, like, in the, it's kind of the way it's shot, but it's, like, it's very, like, it really does feel like it's like a genuine thing. And it's weird because I've seen there's different versions. I should probably, I want to actually, if because I, I don't know if I'm going to have another option to say this. I should preface this by saying that Ben, um, in prep for this episode, sent both the script, which, by the way, I do have a physical copy of the script. Great. Um, wow. The script and a link to like a YouTube bootleg of the Broadway production. I have seen this show live. Um, same, I saw the show in, where did you see it? Uh, the, the Broadway. Oh, you saw it on Broadway. Oh, yeah. Cool. I, I um, lived in, I lived in New York uh, in the mid two thousands. So I saw New York shit. Cool. Uh, but yes, go. I on. lived on the I lived on the east side of Seattle in two thousand in the two thousands when I was growing up. And um, I the production of it that I am working off of that I have seen. Um, I mean, I watched the bootleg again. But like the the live production I'm working off of was a twenty thirteen production that was at the Fifth Avenue Theater co production between the Fifth Avenue Theater and ACT in Seattle. Um, Patty Cohenauer as uh, Big Edie Act 1, Little Edie Act 2, which was quite good. Um, but just as a, as a preface for everyone, that's my what I've seen. Um, very good production of it. In the round, interestingly. Oh, wow. Um, which is a very cool visual aesthetic. A lot of stuff coming up from the ground. Um, but, yeah, I don't know why I jumped into that. But that's my, I feel like I should preface that I have seen a live production of this show. Um, was it about corn? Was there anything about corn in that production? Corn. That was of oh, yeah, that's. I remember what I was going to say, which is that I've seen, and it's sort of, it's, it's left open-ended in the script, um, whether or not Jerry actually does like the corn, or whether he's like eating it out of obligation and like to be kind. Um, and I know the production that I saw in Seattle, it's sort of, like the, the actor who was playing him was like sort of, it wasn't totally clear, like it wasn't clear whether he was like, you know, you know, eating it, and maybe he's like grimacing because he initially re- he initially rejects it, but then he's like, "All right, sure. fine, I guess I'll eat it." Like it's you can go either way. In the film, it feels very it feels very direct to me that he does actually enjoy the corn. <laughs> um, so it yeah. feels weird to like whether or not that love is actually returned or not because it's a very different story if she's singing, especially because it becomes a song in the in the musical. One of I think the better songs. Sure. Um, it it it's a totally different story if he's showing up and the, the love is not returned. I feel like it, it confuses the message a little bit. So. Uh, J- Jerry, Jerry Torres, uh, the young man mm-hmm. uh, known as the Marble Fawn, 
was the yes. loving nickname. It's that on all the reading me. lists. It's not. It's not on all the reading lists. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh. So he became a sculptor. Which is kind of mm-hmm. amazing. Which it, uh, yeah, yes. Um, he and he became, he was a cab driver in the mid two thousands, and like just a woman. This is from Wikipedia, so do with that what you will. But um, a woman uh, ca- stepped into his cab with a camera, and apparently Jerry was just like, "Have you heard of the movie Grey Gardens?" And the woman was like, "I have," and Jerry was like, "I am the Marble Fort." And she was like, mm-hmm. the, she was like, Albert Mazels has been trying to find you. You need to call him. Um, and I did, I did watch on, on, on the Criterion Blu-ray for Grey Gardens. Uh, they do include uh, the 2006 uh, documentary follow-up entitled "The mm-hmm. Beals of Grey Gardens," which is essentially just it's like the outtakes. It's just like mm-hmm. extra footage that was not in the original documentary. Um, just to just to give you another 90 minutes to hang out with these lovely women. Um, I would say the most notable moment uh, in that follow-up is when a fire is started in the home. Um, there's just like, a little Edie's just like, Boy. yeah, little Edie's just like, oh my God, there's a fire! And you see there's like a little, and it's, if you remember at the top of, Grey Gardens, there's that hole in the wall. Mm-hmm. It's from that fire. Interesting. Yeah. And so and it, yeah. So it's, it was so fascinating to sort of see. Yeah. Sort of what was left on the cutting room floor. And it, yeah. I mean, that's like the Beals extended universe. Yeah. That's the only way <laughs> you, you know, can find the, the story. Listen. The okay. And and Zach teased this out beforehand. If we're gonna make these fucking. Like, behind the scenes, how did these people become the way who they are? Yeah, let's make a Beale Beale Cinematic Universe. I want to find out more about Jerry. I want to find out more about Brooks. (laughs) I want these spin-off films. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't give me Cruella. (laughs) I don't need that. (laughs) I don't... This is interesting. I didn't... I wasn't wasn't thinking about bringing it up, but there is... we (laughs) we We may want to mention that there is there is a like a remake there was in oh, HBO yeah, we'll the, get, well, the yes. Gardens movie in 2009 which like I've seen it and it's not a bad movie but like no. why like the music the movie exists like I feel like that is inevitably gonna, like one of the good things about about documentary why I also love documentaries is people say things that you could just never script like you could no. never script it and that's why I actually like the book of the of the musical is cuz they take well, at least in the second act, they take a lot of stuff f- directly from what's in the documentary. Yeah, and they do in the HBO movie too. But the HBO movie is like trying to have more of a narrative structure, and it doesn't really work. But again, I'm not here to just like, I'm not here to just dunk on the movie, the <laughs> remake, because that's not what this podcast is about. No, yeah, no, but, yeah. Um, but I mean, that, it's a fair footnote to say yes. There is an HBO film with uh, Drew Barrymore as Little Edie and Jessica Lange mm-hmm. as Big Edie. They do not uh, take the convention of the musical. Um, they where they switch roles, they play those roles, whatever, we'll get into mm-hmm. it. They play those roles in both acts, if you will, in both timelines. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it's, it's yeah, it's fine. Drew Barrymore, good actor. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. you you get that Emmy. Get, yeah, go for it. Um, Did you get an Emmy for that? I believe I believe they both got Emmys for it, yeah. Because oh, mm-hmm. there's they like a whole... Tony's for this, yeah. I, well, yeah, there's a separate, like, Emmy category for, like, acting in a, uh, like, a miniseries or a, a made-for-TV movie, oh, so... Okay. I guess that's true. Um, yeah. Um, either way, um... Yeah, the, I would say the only other 
thing that I would like to say about Grey Gardens as a as a film is, of course, uh, immediately after we watched the film, uh, the, orig- the original Grey Gardens, we of course had to watch uh, the documentary now uh, parody of it. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Sandy uh, entitled Sandy Passage, um, which mm-hmm. which was the which was the 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 first ever aired episode of Documentary Now, and it's. Mm. I mean, I and I love that show. They've also done a parody of Salesman as well, Globesman, about people selling globes door to door. And of course, the company episode. Yeah. Well, oh god. Well, yeah. that that'll be Patreon. We can't. There's no. There's no world. It's but too we can, good. There's no world. We gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go. Patreon. You gotta go to our Patreon. Oh my god. That's. Thank you. You gotta go. Is what it all leads to. It has to. Um, but no, but I mean, I love documentary now. I think it is just maybe one of the most brilliant recent television shows, and especially, yeah, I mean, the the attention to detail that they that they pay, not only in just like the performance, but also just like it's like it is lit. I would say for the most part that I could tell, it's in pretty much the same aspect ratio as the original film, which is like it's like genius, like good on you. Um, mm-hmm. I love uh, Fred Armisen. As uh, I think Big Vivi is what they're called, and she's just throw- Fred Armisen is throwing this like food at a raccoon. Um, just a great <laughs> visual, um, just a stunning piece of performance. Uh, Bill Hader with sweatpants wrapped around his head. Um, it, that's that's just great. If you want another take on this material and sort of where where it sits in the minds of of Seth Meyers and Bill Hader and Fred Armisen. Um, but yes, it's, it's fun. And again, it, like it's, again, it's clearly a documentary that has like meant a lot for a lot of people. I mean, I feel again, like I said, I feel like it was such an early version of this type of film where we're just like fly on the wall. Um, and so, yeah, so people did call this documentary exploitative. They were like, how dare you just like show off and like, arg- like laugh at the lives of these two women. They little Edie loved this movie. She would like go like I know she loved David Maisel's like a lot. I mean I mean you can tell that. You like she like she's arguably like openly flirting with him like while in the in Grey Gardens. But like no, she was like on the record um saying that she loved this movie. She really liked the Maisels. Um her one the she was like the one thing I wish there was more singing and I wish there was more dancing. Well, mm-hmm. little Edith Bouvier Beale, <laughs> we've got your gr- your wish has been granted because now we move to talk about Grey Gardens, the musical. Um, gosh, how do you take? Yeah, and again, I'll just phrase the question again. How do you take a formless, thematically bound, narratively boundless piece of filmmaking? And make a book musical out of it. Um, so yeah, so so the musical was actually Scott Frankel's idea. He was sort of the oh, the originator of it. I mean, maybe maybe it was a dual idea. I mean, that in the interview at least he said uh, it was his idea. Um, no, you're right. It's Frankel. Yeah, because it's he wrote the introduction to the the published version of the script. Oh wow, so. great. Um, fancy <laughs> that. Um, either way. Uh, so yeah. So the, the quote that I have uh, from Scott Frankel. Uh, from this musicaltheaterreview.com interview. Quote, I was always fascinated by these women, 
The fact they were both so hungry to be understood and wanted an audience so badly that they were both such ex exhibitionists and performers. I thought maybe an audience in the theater could function the same way that the cameras function in the documentary. That they finally had a way to show themselves off to someone else to be seen and heard. I think that's the, I think that that's what both women wanted, to be seen and heard. So yeah, like I said, I think that speaks to sort of how their performative nature is just who they were. Um, I would argue that an audience in a theater and a camera in a documentary do not function the same way. I think they have very different methods of interaction uh, with their intended audiences. Um, because, yeah, it's so... For frame of reference, in Gregon's The Musical, essentially the documentary is the second act. Like, what you see in the film is what we see in the second act, and that is the timeline. Uh, in the, the first act is essentially a fabrication... Uh, by Doug Wright and the rest of the team. Uh, and uh, yeah, apparently Doug Wright was like, was just like, I can't get into this. I don't know how to figure this out. And then Franklin and Corey were like, we, the first act's in the past. Like, uh, uh, I think they say literally like, we had two boxes and one said 1940s and one said 1970s. And then that unlocked it for Doug Wright. Um, so yeah, so the first act is set back in the heyday of Grey Gardens, um, seeing these folks as their younger selves. And the uh, sort of the performance convention, which I, I I would have to double check like the the rights for this. I don't. I I'm curious if it's a requirement that uh, the actor who plays Big Edie in the first act plays Little Edie in the second act. Um, I know that it's listed in the script. Like it says, you should have them double it. I don't think that you would get like. Um who licenses this? I don't... I it, haven't it's, uh, it's, French. it's Dramatist Play Services. Oh, Dramatist. I don't think the Dramatist Play Service would shut you down if you didn't double-cast <laughs> sure. it. Um, like they would with other shows like that. But I... Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very... Not to get too much into my opinion, but like, the show is very much structured to have that doubling of casting. For sure. I don't think sure. that it quite works if you don't do that. Yeah. And um, I'll get... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Dig, I feel like that is like the one of the big things of what this musical is and sort of how it's structured. So we'll get into that. I want to talk Does about... Does Big double? No. no. So, so, yeah, there are separate actors for first act Little Edie and second act Big Edie. So Big Edie just chills the whole first, bat, first act usually? <laughs> Pretty yeah, much. Well, that's a great, great She's in the track. intro. They do an intro at the very beginning that has Big Edie in it in nineteen in the seventies. They do an intro in the seventies that's like a scene long just to like oh, yeah. basically give the audience a presser on what we're going into. And then the whole I mean if you if you watch the Broadway boot, like like the whole front wall rolls away with Big Edie on it and then Goodbye. they just move to the forties and they're there. <laughs> just rolls the away. <laughs> yeah. Um it's wild. Um mm -hmm. but yes, uh Doug Wright who wrote the book. I believe this was his first mm -hmm. book for a musical. Um, do not, mm -hmm. at least his first like major book for a musical. Uh, do not hold me to that. Yeah. Um, he was previously was shortly yeah. after, because it was just after he had done the show that, that got Frankel on board was Quills. And then the show that he actually had done right before this was winning the Pulitzer prize for I am my own wife. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that was like the most recent project he'd done on Broadway before Grey Gardens. Yeah. I don't know if it was his very first musical, but certainly he was coming out of plays. It was an early one. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Quills is a play, early play he wrote about the Marquis de Sade. Um, there's a mm. terrible article. I, I, it's some New York publication that's like an interview with Doug Wright. And it, it was just like, it was like about like, I am my own wife and Grey Gardens. And like, literally the lead is like, Doug Wright loves writing shows about weirdos. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Way to miss the entire point like yeah calling these like sad women and like this this trans woman weirdo is like jesus mm -hmm. christ um but either way so yeah but yes that is what yeah so he doug had just written uh doug wright had just won a pulitzer and i believe a tony as well for i am my own wife mm -hmm. um yep. and jumping right into this show um other shows that doug wright has written he's He's mainly, like, been in musical land, I would say. He's been writing a yeah, lot. It's sort of where he... certainly moved into it. Yes. He, right after this, he wrote the book for The Little Mermaid, which we will be covering on this podcast. He wrote the book for The Little Mermaid? <laughs> of course he did. Well, who else was, Zach? I mean... <laughs> You know what? You're not wrong. Who was it, who was it that I recently found out? Because I recently looked that up because it was for other <laughs> For things. other, other I, reasons. The Little Mermaid. Hold on, I'm literally looking at it now because the director also blew my mind. I think it's like somebody who does opera a yeah, lot. Yeah, Francesca. Oh my God, yeah. Is something is with Zambello? a Z. Is that her name? Yes, Zambello, yeah. yeah. Francesca Zambello, who also did, prior to that, did the the theme park version of the Aladdin musical. Sure. Um, <laughs> and then, but also she's like done a bunch of stuff with opera companies and has frequently worked with um, the one that's like the floating stage. There's like a floating opera stage. Okay. It's like in the water. She's done a bunch of stuff with them. Um, I apologize for <laughs> not no, this is the name th of that one. No, this is great table setting for our Little Mermaid episode whenever we do our Disney gonna, miniseries. <laughs> hold on, floating <laughs> stage. Because I'm going to hate if the episode goes out and I don't actually know the name of this thing. Um, floating stage. No, not the Kanye West one. Um, <laughs> are too you bad. Are you, are you sure? <laughs> it could be the Kanye West. Sounds the, better. The Bregenzer Festspiel, also known as the Bregenz Festival, which is held in uh, Vorarlberg, Austria. It has a stage that floats on the water, and uh, Zambello has directed stuff for them before. Amazing. All right, back <laughs> into this. Um, Doug and Doug Wright has also written another documentary to musical that we will be talking about, mm -hmm. Hands on a Hard Body. Hands on a Hard Body, yeah. Yes. Although this was, oh, yeah. this was the... First, this is the first time, Grey Gardens is the first time they'd ever adapted a documentary to a musical on Broadway. Inge is, that's, what a fascinating stat. That is so mm. wild. Because um, Hard Body was 2012, I believe. Yeah. Um, but I'm what are some impressed. other documentaries we could adapt into a musical? There's got to well, be some other good well, ones. You know what? This is something I was thinking Planet about. Planet Earth. When I, when I Ben asked me to be like, what is a musical? What is a film you want to adapt into a musical? I tried real hard to pick a documentary because I wanted to be like, oh, in the spirit of the thing, let me sure. think of documentaries. But like, it's very difficult to find one that I feel like would be really good as a musical. Because at first I thought the company won, but then I was like, I feel like sure. part of that is the fact that it's the people. Like, it's not just the fact. It's not just the setting. Yeah. Um, which is one of the reasons, by the way, I do think that, that documentary now episode works so good is because they do such a good job of channeling the personalities in the room aside yes. from just like the aura. Um, but it's, it's, I'm honestly impressed. It took until 2006 for them to adapt a documentary into a musical because it feels like 
it should work. Like you should be able to find other documentaries that you can do. And honestly, the fact that Hands on a Hard Body is one of the ones that did get adapted is kind of surprising to me. I mean, there's, um, there's a strong, there's a narrative. I mean, there it's it's literally a chorus line, but with a truck. Mm-hmm. That's like what King it of is. Kong would be a good one. Which one? King of Kong. Sure, King yeah. Of Kong King, would be very yeah, I would say like yeah. a doc. Yeah, clear I would say, characters. Yeah, I would say like a documentary with like a clear narrative. Or because like another documentary that was adapted is well, the documentary is called Gotta Dance, but the musical is called Halftime. Oh, that became Halftime. Yeah. Yes, that is technically mm-hmm. also a documentary to stage adaptation. We will cover that. That is true. It's yeah. a weird one. Um, what, Marvin? <laughs> I think Marvin. Technically, Marvin Hamlish's last musical. His final <laughs> show that he wrote for the stage before leaving uh, this mortal coil. Um, mm-hmm. Got out just in time, Marvin. <laughs> um, Michael Corey and Scott Frankel. Um, mm-hmm. Fascinating uh, com- composing duo, if I may say so myself. Um, they, mm. yeah, this was, I would, again, I would say this was like their first major work. They obviously, they'd worked together on some previous projects together, but this was sort of their introduction into the sort of mainstream uh, musical theater world. Um, of this, this production started off at Playwrights Horizons. Uh, it was an off-Broadway show before it transferred to Broadway. Only a few months later. Like, it, play, it was mm-hmm. off-Broadway and then Broadway just, like, the same year, both in 2006. Um, yeah, and it was not supposed to originally, because it premiered at Playwrights Horizons, which yeah. I think... I apologize if you just said that and I missed it. But, I did, but yes, go on. <laughs> and it, because I was just thinking about the years, um, it got extended like twice. Like sure. they kept doing the run. And it was only in the second extension that they got a producer that was like confirming that they wanted to go to Broadway. So it wasn't conf- it wasn't certain that it was going to go because, I mean, like other musicals that like have considered, like, I mean, The Wild Parties, which I have talked about, it wasn't totally clear if like the scale was going to work because sure. it's such an intimate musical. Um, and I think they actually... There was there's some discussion in the reviews of it that like they did a good job of a, of bumping the set up while still keeping it feeling intimate. Yeah. Um, again, I think it's a it's a story that does kind of you know it works from being either you know I saw it in the round or if you did like an immersive version, you could still do an immersive version of the musical. It would just be a very different thing to watch. It'd be it would um, it would definitely be fascinating. Um, the only the mm-hmm. other things that I want to talk about uh, with uh, Corey and Frankel. Uh, I would mm-hmm. say the the ne- the I believe the only other Broadway show uh, is War Paint, um, mm. oh, which we might have to cover. Jesus Christ! It is it is based on a book the- and a documentary, mm-hmm. so maybe we have to cover it. I don't know. Uh, it's mm-hmm. about fucking uh, Elizabeth Arden and <laughs> Helena Rubinstein. It was like it was because mm-hmm. it played at the Good. Did either of you see it when it was it- at the Goodman? No, because I was out of the I was out of the state. Gotcha. Um, it played at the Goodman. But it was good. It was good though because I was out of the state that summer, and it it coming to the Goodman that summer displaced Wonderful Town, which is supposed to be the summer show, into the fall. Sure. And then I was able to see Wonderful Town, which I wouldn't have been able to see other way. And that production was, was very dope. good. I Mer- loved that produ- the Mary Zimmerman production of, of Wonderful Town. I will go on the record as saying I really love that show. I support that statement. Great, Bree Sudia mm-hmm. as the lead, fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Either way, um, um, but yes, the other one. It was very but yes, good. they didn't. Yes, but War Paint. I was just like, it was like summer of 2016. It was uh, Kristen Ebersole and uh, Patti mm-hmm. Lapone in a musical about Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. And no offense, I was just like, uh, I I am not going to pay sixty dollars to see this show. 
I'm good. <laughs> I was just like, this does. I'm I'm okay. Um, I'm happy for everyone who was able to see this show. Not for me. Um, but then and then they wrote Far From Heaven, which we will be covering on this podcast, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Again, another fascinating film-to-stage adaptation. Um, mm-hmm. And their only other musical... Zach, have you heard of their only other musical? It's called Happiness? When did it come out? It was... I love this show so much because it is... It essentially doesn't exist. It is... I believe it was 2000... <laughs> it was like 2008 or 2009... It was off-Broadway mm-hmm. at Lincoln Center. It is a book by John Wideman. It was directed and choreographed by Susan Stroman. Mm-hmm. Hunter Foster was in it. Joanna Gleason okay. was in it. What is it based on? I'm Nothing! For the shoe to drop. It's an original <laughs> musical! It's not based on anything. Here's the plot of Happiness. Here is the... the yeah, get, get me, give me the meat. I, need, I, to, I need to be and able I'm to gonna give it a, I'm, First of all, I'm just going to say, no, at the time of this recording... No one is licensing this show, and there is not a cast recording for this show. It has disappeared mm. into the ether, uh, into the ephemera of live performance. Ha- Happiness is a musical about a bunch of random New Yorkers who get onto a subway train, a subway car in New York. It stops, and they think they're stuck. And then the the conductor, or like the the guy who works for like the MTA or whoever, is on, and he's Hunter Foster. He questions them. He's like, what is your, what is, you know, we're stuck on this train. Here's a question. What's your happiest moment? And then this old woman like sings about her happiest moment and there's a musical number and then she disappears. And they're like, where'd she go? The plot of happiness is that all of these people on this subway car are dead. They're all dead. I and, it was it was death or purgatory yes. or something like that. And and they have to pick the happiest moments in their life and that's where they and they will live in that moment for all of eternity now that they have died. Um it is a it's like a twilight zone e like what it's a wonderful life It's working. Yes, it yeah, kind of meets working, yeah. Yeah. Um it is it really is like working by way of in transit. Anyone remember that musical? <laughs> dying. Like, they could call oh, it dying. God. In, yes, of course in transit, the the a cappella musical. How could we not forget yeah. in transit? Whose purpose whose purpose on Broadway was to be the a cappella musical yep. until Octet came <laughs> and stomped it into the into the mantle. <laughs> Listen, in transit tiptoed so that Octet could run. Yeah. To be fair. Uh, but yes, it, I, it stood on stage motionless so that <laughs> Octet could just run laps around it. Um, it's hilarious, though, because if, if In Transit hadn't happened, Octet would still have happened. <laughs> fair. Um, I will say, I mm-hmm. saw happiness. I, I somehow oh, really? saw it when it was playing off Broadway. Um, it was 2009, because I think it was the summer. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, mm-hmm. I. Sure, the show was. I thought the show was fine, but I actually like the score a lot. I mean, we'll get into it. Mm-hmm. I think Fra- Scott Frankel, Michael Corey, they can write good songs. They're pretty. They're mm-hmm. pretty good at it. Um, it did have a weird song where uh, Miguel Cervantes, uh, who would in the future become uh, Chicago's mm-hmm. Hamilton, um, mm-hmm. he uh, was like a, the tooth fairy for his young girl and for his like daughter. And like, that was his happiest moment. And it's like a weird, like rap ish number. Weird. Uh, they, they, they don't seem to work well in the contemporary mode. They work really well in that sort of like Sondheimy like classical, classical place, yeah. which is more where Grey Gardens is. So exactly. Um, yeah. Grey Gardens, the musical. 
um, I want to just read this quote from Ben Brantley's New York Times review. Um, this paraphrasing. Uh, he's talking about uh, Kristen Ebersole singing Another Winter in a Summer Town. Uh, she sings the words, she sings the two words, Oh God, with a layering of despair, rebellion, and surrender that becomes a heartbreaking epitaph for an entire life. Watching this performance is the best argument I can think of for the survival of the American musical. Whoa. <laughs> That's relatively impressive. That's impressive to me because Ben Brantley, I mean, all, all respect to him now that he has retired and will drift out of the discourse. Um, he, he is one of the like preeminent voices in American theater being like, God, the musical is dying. Like he constantly is like ringing yeah. his death knell of like the musical as a form is, is on its way out. So the fact that he was inspired by Ebersole's performance to be like, it's back is <laughs> impressive. Yes. And I will say, um, not a lot makes him do that. And I will say, and I, this so. is, this is paraphrasing a, a Natalie Walker tweet. So I apologize. Kristen Ebersole, <laughs> maybe the, the nine 11 truth though, with the prettiest voice. Like I gotta say that of all, <laughs> of all the people who think of all the people who think that nine 11 was an inside job. She has the best voice. Um, like that's and I, listen, I I did my research. There is literally a video of her standing next to Alex Jones at a 9/11 was an inside job rally. Oh. I I I made sure that I could back that up. But yes, also credit. Speaking uh, of the eye emoji. <laughs> but yes, all all credits oh. to uh, to Natalie Walker for that tweet. Either way, that is another thing about Grey Gardens. I think that's that's worth pointing out is that it's sort of in a similar position. I think that it's it's a little bit better than this. But the musical, I would compare it to. Not in anything relating to content, but just relating to like tone and and uh, and purpose thematically would be um, Flaherty and Aaron's *A Man of No Importance*, which came out in two thousand two. Yeah, came out in two thousand two, and it's a similar situation of like, I think that the reason I bring it up is because in the in the light of nine eleven, um, like the, for a decade or so afterwards, there was this there was a. I mean, like, we talk about, like, you know, oh, the musical wasn't dead in this time, but like, it did kind of like there was a dip in the two thousands where sure. like there wasn't as much coming out. That was quality. Or in the case of shows like, I don't know, like Drowsy Chaperone, Legally Blonde, like there were shows of quality coming out, but they weren't being recognized as such. <laughs> sure. And not at the time. And Oh, you don't want to listen to I our Legally Blonde episode. We rag on that show a lot. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I think it is. I think it is a smarter adaptation than others. Interesting. Um, Ooh, what a take. <laughs> Great. Than, than others. Um, not that it's perfect, yes. but I okay, think that there is a reason there is a well, I will say about Legally Blonde is I think there is, first of all, it was on my short list that I gave you. <laughs> it was, yes. Talking about. Um, but I think that there is a reason why Legally Blonde has been, there has been a sort of renaissance of it. Like there have been professional productions of it by companies like really analyzing it in yes. the last few years. And I don't think that comes out of nothing, but separate thing. Man of no um, importance. There is a reason that like in the in the post 9-11 thing, like Panda No Importance came out in 2002 and it like did OK and then flopped and no one does it. And I think the reason for that was because, you know, we needed Mamma Mia. We needed the producers like in the light of 9-11. We needed these big, like upbeat shows. Yeah. And I think that Grey Gardens may have been one of the first shows that was like a little bit more somber in tone, although it is very funny um, to to aim for that, like more Sondheimian, like somber tone and still get a hit out of it. And I think that that's very much, I mean, that is based on Ebersole's performance, like fundamentally, like she yeah. is the thing that made this show work. Um, uh, and I think, yeah, so I have a comparison there of like, it's important to me that this musical came out when it did, 
um, considering the way that it was able to achieve success. Because while I won't necessarily say that like it is the future of musicals, <laughs> sure. but I think it was a good indication. It was an indication that Broadway was going to be able to move on from the like much more bouncy, upbeat mood that it was in in the yeah. in the early 2000s uh f- first off uh man of no importance a show we will cover so we'll have a whole mm-hmm. dang episode on that which i'm very excited for <laughs> um yeah uh i you know i'm someone who i would say historically really loves these kinds of shows especially over mm-hmm. sort of peppier content like legally blonde um i do not think i yeah again i would not go so far to say this is the future or like the saving grace of the american <laughs> musical i think that is a wild claim mr brantley um yeah no, no but no, no. he was in a it was a weird it was time. a weird time it was like, but it's, it was the year after it was the year after jersey boys won he was probably very like oh god this is where it's all going from here like, but also like this was the year of spring awakening which again like love or hate spring awakening like i feel like that probably had a lot more to say about the coming decade of musical theater than great gardens did it really was a harbinger of where we were going to go in the yes. future okay for like, better or worse it's whatever worse. your take is it's worse it's very funny <laughs> to me because that musical has that musical is like I think my, my current pinned tweet on Twitter is like if you were a if you were a student who was if you were a musical theater student in like the early two, in the late two thousands and all of your friends were obsessed with Spring Awakening you may be entitled to financial compensation <laughs> because I do think that I am I am I'm very happy to see that that the tide is starting to turn much in the same way it is kind of with Rent where people are starting to realize that like maybe it's not as like cutting and deep and important as it made itself out to be at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same director. It's still it's it still is Michael, it um, is it's Michael Greif doing it. Yeah, he's I don't even I mean I guess this is the point where I get into my Michael Greif rant. But he you have well, first of all am I pronouncing yeah I am think I, pronouncing his last I name believe correctly? it is Greif. Um, um, so I will say what I it's not so much a rant as much as my perspective on it, which is that I think that Michael Greif is a I think he is a fine director. I think that he he does a he does a job. He does a good job <laughs> directing. Um, I think, and I think he actually does something good that directors should do when they're directing new musicals, which is that he he is relatively hands off. Like he doesn't try to be like like he doesn't have a style in the way that like I don't know like Eva Van Hove or something like has a style that he does musicals. Uh, wait, in. Eva Van Hove um, has a style? What the fuck are you talking about? The bland. The- that's a <laughs> that is a do- totally different rant. I'm um, sorry. I don't know. Uh, Robert Wilson. I don't know. There, no, I, I, I know. I'm, I'm I'm joking. Susan anyway. Stroman has a style. But, um, yes, yes. He does. I feel like he he has a style, and he ha- he certainly has a type of musical that he likes to do. Like he has a thematically similar musicals he likes to do. Um, and that's true. I don't feel that he has necessarily served any of the musicals that he has shepherded to Broadway. I feel like he has done. He very much has like. And maybe this is partially, like, the the culture's fault as opposed to his. But, like, I feel like very often his, the way in which he directs musicals, and this is especially true, with, I mean, you can see this with Rent, Evan Hansen, like, all these. I think that he, and this, again, it's, I'm, I'm covering my bases because I don't want him to hate me. But, I mean, like, he's not going to listen to this. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like he has a tendency, he has a tendency as a director to sympathize with his protagonist to agree where to a degree where it becomes difficult to... Um, to criticize what they are doing. Um, I think that Michael Greif's direction of Rent lionizes the characters to a greater degree than the script does, and I think that that's his. And Evan Hansen's exactly the same way. Yeah. Like, you could you could totally do Evan Hansen in a way where you are more critical of Evan's actions, Yes. although the ending makes that real hard to do. Yes. But I think that, again, Greif's connection to his protagonist makes it difficult for him to stage it in a way that 
that presents them in a critical way. And that can be a challenge in especially considering the kind of work he likes to direct. So he is a fascinating director. I, I'll just list some of his credits mm-hmm. for those at home. Um, yeah. Hey, he had them hold their microphones. It was revolutionary. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so, he, of course, he directed Rent. Uh, mm-hmm. He directed uh, He directed a show called Never Gonna Dance, which, again, I'm just like, doesn't... Never gonna see it. Uh-huh. Uh, he directed mm-hmm. Great Gardens, Next to Normal, If Then... Uh, Dear Evan Hansen and Warpaint. Those are his Broadway credits. He has actually really fascinating off-Broadway credits. It's a huge list, so I'm not going to read all of them. He directed, like, a, the, I believe the original production of A Bright Room Called Day, the Tony Kushner production, in 1990. Um, he directed uh, Mr. Marmalade, if, if folks know that, uh, Noah Heidel play. Mm-hmm. He directed... Um, Oh my gosh. He directed the 2010 Angels in America revival off-Broadway. He did Far From Heaven, which we'll talk about. He directed um, one of my favorite musicals, uh, Giant, the uh, Lacusa musical. uh, Brian Darcy James, of course, of of Shrek fame. Um, But yes, he is, again, and yeah, I I think that's that's a fair thesis for him. Yeah, he is very... He is very favorable to his protagonists and maybe not as critical mm-hmm. as maybe another director might be. Um, in a, yeah, in a way that mm-hmm. potentially sort of lets them get away with more than maybe they should in the context of their uh, particular narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that it depends on the material because Grey Gardens is what... And I've seen the movie of Giant. I haven't seen the musical, so I don't know what he does with it. But um, Grey Gardens and Giant feel like they are stories that, like, are more able to present their protagonists. Like, I don't think Grey Gardens is trying to criticize his protagonist, to be clear. I don't think a production that's trying to paint Edie as the bad guy would be would be worthwhile. But I do think that, like, he has a tendency, I mean, you know, with musicals where the characters are supposed to not necessarily be good people, he yeah. has a tendency to direct them in ways and to frame, to frame the staging and, like, you know, coach performances out of people that does very much encourage them to be like, yeah, I'm in the right the whole way through. Um, which could be interesting if he's working with a protagonist that's much more overtly supposed. Like if he did, if if Michael Greif directed a musical adaptation of like Train Spotting, that would be fascinating <laughs> because that's a that is a text that is about the characters being terrible, and I don't think it quite lionizes them for it. You know, there was a um, stage adaptation feel- of Train Spotting. There was. It was, it was not a musical. It was just like a, a straight play, and it was like grun. It was supposed to be like grungy and like there's like getting dirty in front of the audience. Like it was mm-hmm. either Ali on the round. He's like, oh yeah, we're gonna be rot mm-hmm. in your face, train spotting. Um, but no, that feels like a that feels like a sort of thing that would really like that would be a challenge for him if he a challenge uh, not a challenge like oh he'll be difficult, but like I think that's the kind of thing that would be interesting for him to do because it would force him to not paint the protagonists in a good light. Because if you do, train spotting just becomes rent. It becomes about a bunch of <laughs> terrible people and how cool it is yes. to be bad. It's like, but I think, but I think I, it's sort of like to your, to your point that I think that's why he sort mm-hmm. of succeeds in this show because I think, oh, yeah. because yeah, I don't think, I mean, obviously like the beauty of the source material and just, I think what the musical actually captures pretty well is sort of the moral ambiguity of, both of these characters, I mean, especially Big Edie, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, but yeah, so you have. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna walk through the show. I'm gonna walk through it just so I have it like song by song uh, printed off here. Yeah. Um, we start with a girl who has everything, and again, like most of these songs, are, like very sort of like old timey past. Like th- they hate when people refer to these songs as pastiche, but they are pastiche. You have a mm-hmm. fucking minstrel song in the in the first act. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which, and it's, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna talk I'm about always that. so, and we talked about this on the Legally Blonde episode. I'm always so fascinated when writers just like, just the source material doesn't really contain any sort of racism. And they're like, we'll just throw it in there. Um, just, just because. And it's like, why is this more problematic than the thing that came out before mm-hmm. this? Um, and like, mm-hmm. I quote unquote, get it. Like, I get like, yeah. Big Edie is just like, and I guess I guess it, and it, I guess it does say something about the character. She is the type of performer mm-hmm. who is going to sing a racist song called Harmony Grits. I guess that gives you mm-hmm. information about who she is as a woman and a performer. Yeah. See, that's the thing is, I think that first of all, it's the song Harmony Grits could easily be cut. Yeah. Like it could easily oh. have just been like they just cut to the next scene. Let's go. Because I think that honestly. There's, I have, a, I, have a, I have the flip, I have a coin flip, I, like back and forth idea on this, which is that like, I also get it, like in quote, we're both doing air quotes yes. for, the, for the listeners. I get it in the sense that like they're trying to pe- point the, paint the idea that like she's out of touch or she doesn't care about the fact that they're offensive or they just don't care that it's offensive because it's the forties. Like they can totally get it. Like no one in universe recognizes it as offensive except for because even the dad, even the dad coming in, who by the way, when I listened to the soundtrack, I was one hundred percent convinced it was John Cullum. No, nope. it's not. It's John McMartin. Um, they sound the same. But, um, but jo- John McMartin the dad, from the original cast of Follies. Yes. Pulling um, that link even together. Then I, like, the, he comes in and he's, his offense isn't like, oh, no, you're being racist. It's just like, I don't want you singing. Like, yeah. the, no one in the musical takes offense to the fact that it's racist. Yeah, even Brooks, Which, like, Brooks get, doesn't really oh, yeah, He's yeah. clearly like, he's, because they literally, I think they describe it in the musical that like, like it's in the stage records or something. They're like, you know, they're, they're you know, placid and unrem- like unemotional butler. And it's like, yeah. that. first of all, I mean, that's like very... That's very whatever that character is from Mame. It's like, like let's just put the racist caricature in the back. And I don't think Brooks is a caricature to be clear, but like, I don't know if any actor would have like a blast playing him in an all otherwise all white cast. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the point is, I get why it's there, like character wise, in order to paint the thing. I don't get why they don't do anything with it. Like they, yeah. it's just it's in the musical. They add this because honestly, all it had to be was a bit where Little Edie gets the song list and she lists off a bunch of them, which she does in the musical. And that's all it needed to be. But the fact that they continually like make a point of the fact that every single song on the set list is a racist song, um, yeah, you, even the ones they make up. You get like, it's it, like you get like clearly yeah, it's, you get itty bitty geisha in the in like the mm-hmm. opening number as well. It's like yeah, we, we, we and maybe that's all we need. Yeah. Like we we need that one little snippet to just be like, this is what the song is, and you can just assume that the rest of them are like that. Um, but yeah, like, I wrote down clearly, casual child orient- orientalism in the first 10 <laughs> minutes. Poor Sarah like, If you're going to do that, you got to have a reason why you're like uh, something you're trying to say about that. And like the musical clearly is like it goes into way too much detail about what these songs are and it brings them up too much to not have a reason for doing so. But I don't but I don't know what it is because then that disappears <laughs> in the second act. They don't talk about it. Um, oh my god, it's very strange. But yeah, so it's, it's weird. So yeah, like we said, the first act is like pulled from whole cloth. It is the it is the mm-hmm. day of Little Edie's engagement party to mm-hmm. Joseph Jack Kennedy, um, which again maybe happened. We don't know. Uh, but for the they weren't yeah, there wasn't a party. Like this event did not happen. For yes, sure. exactly. Um, and so yeah, so we set up. Uh, Big Edie as this big 
singing, like, again, like, presentational, like, I'm here to perform, I'm here to, ent- we, let me entertain you, but but da ba da Yeah, so we get some nice songs, and I would say, yeah, so I would say, on the whole, like I said, Frankel and Corey, they are very clever writers. And I think sometimes, mm-hmm. like, Sondheim talks a lot about, like, not letting, trying to make sure that, like, your cleverness comes from the character, and that the writer isn't poking through. I feel like sometimes... Michael Corey's lyrics are a little too clever for the characters who are singing them. I think they're very mm-hmm. proud of themselves for the very clever lyrics that come out. I'm not all... I, I sometimes question whether these characters would actually create these clever rhymes, have this extensive of, mm-hmm. of the vocabularies that they employ. Um, it's It sometimes feels like showing off, even if, like, again, yeah, well-written, good good on you. But I, I'm, I'm always, I sometimes question whether the lyrics are actually truthful to the characters who were singing them. Mm-hmm. It's my big no, point. No, it's accurate to me. Because I know that the musical, like, it, it, consistently the lyric work is very, like, intricate and very detailed. And yes. that works in the first act for me. Like, I think, I've, I actually, I went back and forth on this because I had the same thought, and the song 515, I think, is very well written, and I think it does a good job of setting up the world, and it's very wordy. Like, it's very, like, you know, I'm sure that they're very happy with, you know, the <laughs> yes. number of rhymes they fit into that of different, like, <laughs> multi-syllable words. Um, and that works in that context, because it's setting up this sort of, like, slightly heightened reality that we have for Act 1, and I do believe it's a heightened reality. Um, and then in the second act, it's mostly dumbed down, but then you still have some songs. Uh, the kick I had has some of it where it's like just a little bit too smart. Yeah. Like the, not that I'm not that I'm like, Oh, the characters who do should be dumber, but like, it just feels like, especially for a character like big Edie, it doesn't feel like she'd be throwing around some of the words that she does in, um, in the cake I had, yeah. in the cake I had. Although I will say that I, I went uh, when I rewatched the, the documentary, I discovered that there's actually more of that song that's taken from things she said in the documentary yeah. than I anticipated. Um, so, you know what, maybe, maybe that, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I, fuck us. I, I, I noticed that I noticed the same, I bring it up to say, I noticed the same thing that it felt like sometimes the lyrics feel a little bit too smart for, um, it, they feel smart in a way that, that feels like the writer poking through. For yeah. sure. But yeah, so there's, but there is, yeah, so we got this engagement, uh, Jack Kennedy comes over and then, yeah, there's sort of this essential, there's this pin stuck in of like little Edie's mm-hmm. done. She's 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 already sort of like resentful of her mother. Um, there is the one. There was one lyric in Going Places that I pointed out that I like. I highlighted. I was like, oh, "There's the one that's too smart," or it feels like it's, you know, the writer pointing through. Is it? Where is that song? Which which song? Are you, which are you looking for? Mother mm-hmm. Darling, Going Places. I'm looking for going places. Yeah. Um, she's singing with Jack. Yeah, where? She's singing with... with there it is. Joe, Joe, Jack, whatever. Joe, yeah. <laughs> Some Kennedy yeah. name. And there's a fu- this is the lyric. It's from Edie. It's, and as a former Waldorf Deb, I, uh, I'll make fashion my cause celeb, call it my American-style crusade, which just feels a little like it's it's just one step beyond yeah. what I would believe. Because the rest of the song is fine, although there's a couple lyrics that are just weird. Um, but part of that is, like, it's it's Joe. He's a kind of, you know, he's built in that, like, Kennedy character, so it makes sense that he'd have this weird diction to go along with it. Like, just something to distinguish him from everyone else. Absolutely. Because he does feel out of place. I think that's actually something that's kind of subtle in the first act is that Joe does not feel like he fits in this, like where the Beals are because the Beal residence is like it's new it's not nouveau riche it's very old riche but it's like <laughs> it's high it's it's high society but in a way that when joe comes in he feels like he doesn't 
he's not there. Like I can't see Joe being in five fifteen and like cavorting around with the girls For and sure. like, playing with them. Like it's it doesn't like it feels much more the the role of something like Gould. Um who by the way, if I could go on that tangent. Sure. Um do you want to talk about Gould before I talk about it in the music? So yeah, yeah I'll say this is the other characters that we have. So yeah, we have Sort of these, the Lee and Jackie, who are like the two young girls. Yeah, the two sort of the, the nieces of Big mm-hmm. Edie and Jackie, uh, played by Sarah Hyland in the original Broadway production, uh, who would go on to star in Modern Family. Horrible. Yep. She would go on to star in Modern Family oh, yeah. a few years after. Wild. I didn't, I didn't um, even think about that. But then, yeah, so we've got Gould, um, who, is, who is mentioned in the documentary. Uh, she is uh, Big yeah. Edie's accompanist um, and Mm-hmm. confidant if you will um yeah. and then yeah we have- mentioned a lot i should say because there is there is a scene in the documentary one of my favorite ones where and it gets turned into part of uh around the world in the musical where she's yelling like you know he never you know his relationship with my mom was uh little is saying like you know he he his relationship with my mom was platonic like he never took care of her yeah. he never took advantage of her like he was you know, it's like a very tense moment in the documentary that's shot beautifully with like both of the bodies in the mirror, and you can just see the oh, mom. The, the 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 pink. I think it's called the pink room scene, right? It's like near the end. Yeah, yeah. Like that maybe one. the best, um, like, maybe the best scene in the film. Honestly, it's really good. But that centers on Ghoul. It centers on like his relationship to the mom, and she she even says, and it's a line that gets repeated in the musical that like she loved him more than any spouse yeah. or any other like son that she had. Like she has the connection. Um, but yeah, let's, which is so yeah. interesting. I'll, I'll yeah. just list the uh, quickly. We'll get back to Gould. Yeah, so he's like, and he's. Yeah, I would yeah, say yeah. he's used. His function is very fascinating in the first act, which I'm sure is what you're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have uh, the major, who is uh, Big Edie's dad, um, Brooks, the the butler, uh, who is the only uh, person of color in the musical. Uh, he is their black butler, and is a new character invented for the musical, but they like retcon him being the like yes. father or grandfather of the Brooks in the second. Yes. Act. Very strange. Um, and I mm-hmm. believe those are, yeah, those are all the characters. Um, either way. So yeah, Zach, what do you have to say about, yeah. uh, Gould? So Gould is, in, so I say Gould is fascinating in this musical because first of all, he's, he's in it. Like after <laughs> having such a big presence. Well, I mean, after having such a big presence in the movie without actually being there, I think that it's interesting that they were like, well, that's a character we got to put in because every other character that you mentioned, like the father, I mean, the father a little bit, or sorry, not the father, the grandfather a little bit is like mentioned, but like passively. And obviously Jackie and Lee are like, you know, mentioned in passing, but Gould, like we get to know about his relationship to the, to the Beals in the documentary in the way that we don't for all the other invented characters um, or added in characters. And I do think that the relationship between the relationship between the mother, between Big Edie and Gould in the first act I'm not going to say it's it's not the best written relationship in the first act sure. because I think that Gould he leans a little bit too far into like I am a gay man who drinks a lot. Yeah, um, they play up that stereotype quite a bit, quite to a, a bit to a degree that like I I feel like and this may just be the production that I saw. He is a little aware of it, like it's more of a defense mechanism, and that he's like playing into it because it's a way of him to escape yeah. this world that he's in. Um. But I mean, again, your mileage may vary on production. But I would say that, like, even if it's not the best written, mu- even if it's not the best written relationship, I think that the Gould Big Edie relationship in Act One in Act One is actually more interesting than the Little Edie and Big Edie relationship yeah. in Act One. I mean, there's more, there's more, have, there's more nuance to it, I suppose. Exactly, there's more to dig into because I think that with the Little Edie and Big Edie relationship in the Act One, it very much boils down to like, like they they invent and it they invent 
a thing that is the disagreement, which is like, um, you know, the, the mom wants to sing and then she like decides not to. And then little Evie's like, no, actually you can sing. And then there's like the disagreement about her with the telegram. Like there's a lot of weird, like not sitcom things that happen with the two of them, but the relationship, if you talk about the musical and the movie being character driven, yeah. like it's more of a character study. I find the really, I find myself wanting to know more about the Gould and Big Edie relationship than I do about the mother daughter relationship in the first act. For sure. Um, which is like the fact that he that and then not only is he not in the second act, but his death in the second act is mentioned like within four lines of dialogue in the middle of a patter song. And that like to me from the very first time I listened to it, because I listened to the soundtrack right before I saw yeah. it. Yeah. That always felt cheap to me. Like, it always felt like they just kind of tossed him out in the middle of this thing and being like, well, you should probably mention that Gould died at some point. And so they'd, like, tuck it in the middle of this lyric, this song that is, like, not about him. And it's always, like, I, I want, you know, this is my hashtag justice for Gould. <laughs> like, I want, I wish he was, I wish he was written better because I want to know yeah. more about his relationship to the mom. And I feel like it's, it's really interesting. He is, he is definitely um, positioned as more of a, almost, almost like the gay best friend character. In the mm-hmm. in the musical. and then he's like starting the, like the bit. What's the line? The line that he has at the end of "Drift Away" because "Drift Away" is yeah. a gorgeous song. Yeah. I love that song. Um, what's the line he has right at the, the, the very end? Because he's talking about like, where is it? Understand, kid, you're my soulmate. Yeah, like she's like, oh, you're my soulmate, and he like he kind of like deflects from it. He's like, oh no, I I don't know about that. Like whatever, you know, I don't make me don't make me sound so mercenary. Um, <laughs> You know, all this stuff. And then he, like, stops playing and rises. And it says in the script, he rises from the piano and says a bit too pointedly, for the party this afternoon, which would you prefer? Should I wear the white linen sacket you bought for me at Bergdorf's or the linen one you picked up in Rome? Mm-hmm. And then in stage direction, he arches an eyebrow at her for a moment. It seems to pierce her. He touches her cheek and then exits up the stairway. Like, that, to <laughs> me, is way more interesting than anything we get with the, with the mother-daughter. Sure. And it's not paid off. Like, I recognize that it isn't paid off in any way. But, like, I want that info and yeah. i think that it's so cool that the musical like starts to go there and i just wish it i wish it was longer yeah um yeah it's the it, it's it's, it's fascinating it's fascinating right the the threads that they set up that yeah mm-hmm. again, again because of sort of the narrative convention that they've set up that can't be paid off they're like well everything has to build to what the documentary is we can like put yeah. these little crumbs in there but like we are here for this mother-daughter relationship. And even if we create mm-hmm. these more interesting uh, other relationships, that's not what we're mm-hmm. here for, and we cannot give them as much focus. Um, which, yeah, mm-hmm. again, like, is... Uh, your mileage may vary on whether that is an issue for you. Um, yeah, and I think this is a, this is a big script. Uh, I, again, I personally... I mean, one of the reasons that... It, to get back to the video essay stuff, one of the reasons I focused on single productions is because then you can analyze the choices made in that particular production. Yeah. Anytime we're analyzing a script just on a script level, like you're gonna, it's gonna depend via the production. And the production I saw in Seattle did, I think, like try to move in a closer direction, building the Gould relationship out and making him more of a person. Yeah. But like the musical on the bootleg on Broadway, he certainly feels like he's he's very like you know I'm I'm a drunk gay, um, the whole way. <laughs> no disrespect to the actor. No, and uh, uh, Bob, but I would like, say Bob's drunk gays. Yeah, no, Bob Bob Still yeah. Bob Stillman, the actor. I mm-hmm. I do like his performance, and again, maybe that's a direction problem. Maybe that's mm-hmm. what he was given to yeah. to create. But he's and I believe he is actually playing piano in that production. I believe yes, he, is, he is really playing piano. Yes, I know, and that. I, he's um, he's. But yeah, yeah. it's. It's interesting. I think that it really is a... I mean, the whole show, I think, depends a lot on who's performing in it, and Ghoul is a big one of, like, 
you can really bring that forward with like a really talented actor and director team that just knows where they want to go with that role. Um, but I th- and I think it's because you're also yeah. because this is like one of Big Edie's closest relationships, right? It informs a lot about mm-hmm. who she is. So if you have yeah. if you have a very nuanced Gould performance, then that's going to inform the rest of Big Edie's Act One performance, which is mm-hmm. uh, which yeah, which is obviously like, super important. Um, so essentially, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So for this manufactured uh, conflict uh, in Act One, so yeah, so Big Edie. They get this telegraph uh, from her husband, Phelan. And this and this did actually happen. He did actually send mm-hmm. a telegraph from Mexico saying that they were going to get a I divorce. Believe, I want to quickly jump in. Do you mean telegram? You know, sure. I, just want, I, I needed to jump in because otherwise the, the comments will. Yeah, but. they're going to drag me for giving the wrong form of communication. Yes, it is a telegram. Oh. That yes, yeah, so, but yes, mm-hmm. Phelan did actually send a telegram from Mexico uh, to say that uh, they want to get a divorce. Um, Big E D sees this and it's like, oh, I might as well fuck up my daughter's engagement <laughs> if this is <laughs> if this is where we're going. Let's might as well hide it. Yes, yeah. um, so she hides the telegram. She like spills the beans to Joe about this like promiscuous event that uh little mm-hmm. Edie took part in and joe's like that's ah, not the it's it's kind of the legally blonde thing where he's like i don't i can't be seen with a promiscuous woman like this i need a i need a jackie mm-hmm. not a Marilyn. um and then that really is that literally is the line from yep legally we, we recorded that epi- uh, we recorded that episode very recently it is still in my brain yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so then what? and she said yeah and then so then yeah little Edie sings the song Daddy's Girl, which I do like. Again, like, I I would say I'm a fan of most of the songs in this show. Uh, oh, I think the score is very strong yes. in this musical. Um, but then, get the telegram. Everything's ruined. Joe leaves. Mm-hmm. Major's disappointed. And Major literally says to Jackie Kennedy, I guess the... Or, not paraphrasing. I guess the legacy of this yeah, family like, rests in... Home. Yes. Yeah. It's like, great. <laughs> He says to a 12-year-old. Although I do think, I actually like, I think that the musical, again, this is another thing I think, like, it sets up and it, it it sets up and it, like, goes a distance with it, but that it doesn't, like, land the ending on it. But, like, setting up, the song Mary Well is really interesting, like, structurally within the within the thing, because it I think it does the best job of anything of setting up, like, the aristocracy world yes. that they're in. Because I think in, in re-watching and rereading the musical, I think that there's, I understood better the parallel that is being drawn between like the the Beals, the two Edies feeling trapped in either of the settings that they're in, either being trapped in like the aristocracy of the 40s and then being literally trapped in this house with each other. Yeah. Um, and I think that Mary Well does a good job of setting that up, of being like, you know, I mean, the whole like the hallmark of aristocracy is responsibility. And then E says in Act Two and in the documentary, like, oh, that was the like that was what ruined me, like feeling like I needed to like I needed to pay it forward or whatnot, like that I had this responsibility. Um, because I not it's not to say like I think that the rich oh it's not because I do I think the rich have a responsibility to like better the world. But the fact that he's like you know your your responsibility as the rich is to be the benevolent rich person, like it's a very sure, different sort of yeah. thing. Um, but I think that Mary Well actually does a very good job of like showing how that is indoctrinated. Like, because he's literally singing it to like a 12 and an eight year old being like, you have to marry well, like you have to uphold the Beale family crest. And he's got the, like, he's got it on his pocket watch and everything. Um, like, I think that's actually, uh, I think it does a good job of setting that up. 
um, especially for a song that like doesn't isn't really about the Beals. I think it's a good it's a good world building tool. Um, Small, yeah. When I say the Beals, I'm talking about yes, the, the big and little. I got you, yeah. But yeah. Small writing, yeah. good on them. Um, yeah. It's good, especially for a song that like seems like it could it could like structurally, if you're going by the plot basis, could be cut. Yeah. But like, does everything for the world building. Um, and then you have a song like P, like Two Peas in a Pod that's very much about showing that like the the Eds have each other and that's the thing. So because I think that's I mean not to be like oh the reason but like <laughs> the reason that the thing that drives Big Edie to, to sabotage the wedding is because when she realizes that Phelan is divorcing her, the only person she has left in this in this oppressive yeah. community is her daughter, and if she gets married, she will lose her yep. too. And so it to- I think it that does a good job. That is a good example of the manufactured first act setting up the circumstances for the second act. Cause even if that literal event didn't happen, there is truth in it in like yes. the idea that the mother was in some way, a reason for why the daughter got trapped there and like why she had this dependent relationship. Yeah. Um, there was this very, yeah, this, the sort of the toxic yeah. parasitic relationship. Like, yeah, again, like, yeah, mm-hmm. just, just, just parodic what you said. Yes. They, even if it is manufactured, it is, it is truthful in the circumstances of their relationship. Um, the act ends yeah. with her singing Will You, a song that is apparently mm-hmm. uh, indebted to Singing in the Rain. Um, it's, so it's, says... It just is the song Will You from Singing in the Rain. I mean, it just is. Um, and, it le- and it ends with, like, Big Edie singing this and then Little Edie with, like, a suitcase ready to leave Grey Gardens. Mm-hmm. Act two, no, 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 <laughs> we are back. And so, yeah, so I would say the two... Obviously, the two big things in the second act, which is, again, for the most part, replicating the aesthetic and structure of the documentary mm-hmm. is number one, you have the actor who played Big Edie now playing Little Edie. Um, every, every woman becomes their mother, I suppose, or what have you, uh, mm-hmm. something, something of that. And then, so yes, you do not have the documentary device. You do not have the camera device. And so you have, in not a lot of moments, you just have little, little Edie now talking to the audience mm-hmm. But, like, that device mm-hmm. isn't really consistent. It's just, it's... Conv- yeah, if you want to talk about the... It's, it's the only... It's, it's, it yeah, to. it's... It's it's only used when it's convenient for the for the writing, when, like, little Edie has no other scene partners. She just talks to the audience. It is a... I mean, yeah, it's a very inconsistent device. Um, because, yeah, like, obviously, you are taking a... You are taking a source material, which is literally two characters... For the most part two characters talking with each other and a film crew. So how do you replicate that mm-hmm. on film? Well, you just, uh, well, you know, you just, like, use it when most convenient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that there, well, to briefly mention that, because, yeah, you mentioned the double casting, that, like, the, the same actress plays old Edie and, or big Edie in Act 1 and then little Edie in Act 2, because they're around the same age, yeah. um, if you do the distancing of, like, the, the distance between the years. Um... And it's one of the reasons I think that I mentioned earlier that I think that the musical only works if you do that doubling. And the reason is I think that the protagonist of Act One is Big Edie and the protagonist of Little Two uh, of Act Two is Little sure. Edie. And that's sort of a structural problem in the fact that like Little Edie kind of should be the protagonist of Act yes. One if you want to build up. And that's one of the big that's one of my major issues with the show is that I think that the show I mentioned that like the um the bit with the telegram, there is truth in it even if it isn't real because it sets up thematically what the relationship is in act two. Um, And I think that they actually do a very good job of like presenting big Edie in act one in a way that you can sort of get where you, you understand why this character in act one 
ends up as the characters that she is in Act yes. 2. Like, there was a connection made there. I don't get that with Little Edie. Like, I don't get why this person in Act 1 would turn into the version that we see in Act 2. It doesn't feel like there's the same connection. And that's that, I think, is a weakness of the script, because then all of Act 2 is trying to, like, be Little Edie, and it feels like she's just an entirely different human to the one that we get in Act 1. And, like, I get why that is, because I'm not saying that, like, she had to be, you know, the same person in Act 1, because she wouldn't be. She's, like, 20 in that in that <laughs> yes. act. But, like, I, I needed a little bit more of an indication that, like, this was possible for her, if you're going to do this Act 1 setup. Yeah. Um, and that's that's hard to I mean that is that's not an easy ask to be like show how this perfectly relatively sane twenty year old is going to turn into Little Edie and as we know her in the documentary, and I think that there's some actor the actress who did it in Seattle actually Jessica Scarrett she did a very good job I thought of like showing that like the like a little bit more not oh god that's not the right comparison but like there's a little bit of like you know you can see that you can see the smile starting to fade sure. as the act goes on so that when you get to the telegram it's not like that's the first hit but like that's the moment that the whole wall falls down that's been like chipping away that is the best i've seen it done admittedly you know, i've only seen two but um it's but it's hard it's a really hard thing because of the way that it's written because it doesn't set up that she's going to be the protagonist yeah, we talk um, we talk about brand loyalty on this podcast a lot uh, especially because <laughs> You know, we've, we've talked about, especially in, like, our, our first few episodes, like, major film uh, brand, brands, if you will. You know, Shrek and Legally Blonde. IPs. Yes, yeah. IPs, if you will. Yes. Um, and, like, obviously, Grey Gardens, like, like, and even bringing Grey Gardens from an off-Broadway institution to Broadway um, is, a, is a huge ask. Like, yeah, you, I don't know if you're going to, like, rake in millions from, like, the Janus Films crowd. Like, I don't think they're going to fucking, <laughs> like... Shut, like they're not going to be like the huge money makers uh, for the most mm. part. Um, obviously, like they produce. Like I think I've I say this in the Shrek episode. I believe that like most of these film to stage adaptations are for the sake of capitalism, are for the sake of uh, mm. brand loyalty and uh, brand monetization. Um, but yeah, there is. I would say like with this property, it's yeah, it's the love of the film. I would, I, it's, mm. I mean, obviously they think they thought they could make some money because I would like to think you wouldn't go mm. to Broadway if you didn't have that idea. But I would did say. Did it make mm -hmm. money? I don't know. I don't know if it recouped. So think far, it did, I think it recouped. Ones... It. Wait, oh, it recouped. Did it recoup? I think, I think it did recoup its investment. Good on it. Honestly. This is our first one that we've covered then. Except for Little Night Music, um, I guess. Hold on, I'm looking Wait, it up. Um, I, I appreciate you doing that research, Brad. I didn't I didn't realize. I saw I know I meant to bring it up, but I know Shrek lost money and Legally Blonde both lost money. Mm -hmm. They both cost about twenty to twenty five million bucks. Um up. no, it did not recoup its investment. It did not recoup okay. unfortunately. But so yeah, so I, I would say like obviously like they thought they could make something, but well, obviously they didn't. But yeah, I would say this is like, mm -hmm. and I, I would put this like in the category of something like The Band's Visit, where you're like, you're producing this show because mm -hmm. you love this show. Either you love this show or you love the thing it's based on. Um, maybe both. Yeah. Um, and like you're saying, like this came from a genuine, like one of the writers was like, I want to do this as a musical. As opposed to like Shrek was like DreamWorks theatrical, like founded itself to do Shrek. Yes. Like it came from a top down decision as opposed to the writers being like, this is something I'm very interested yes, in doing. But I, but and it only went, and again, it only went to Broadway because there was a producer outside of the original producing team that was like, I want to take it to yes. Broadway for you. Um, but I, I say this mm -hmm. all this to say that even, even outside of that commercial thing, there is kind of a brand an ip recognition with the beals mm -hmm. 
like the, again they were these yeah. huge characters they like resonated and they sort of like stuck it like again like they they were literal like like fashion designers who were inspired mm-hmm. by their outfits by their wardrobe like they were a huge seminal piece of culture of queer culture of like the documentary circuit um so so and I, and I would say Kristen again, a wonderful nine uh, eleven was the Kristen nine eleven was an inside job. Ebersol like does yeah, Ebersole, a yeah. um does like she does a great she has a great she deserved that Tony like she did like like oh, yeah, 100%. she walked away with that Tony that year for best actress um and Mary Louise Wilson as well as Big Edie like uh, for best supporting actress they both do stuff mm. but again like she's not only giving a good performance but she is also I would say giving respect to Edith, little Edith Bouvier Beale. Like there. And so mm-hmm. it, again, in a way that where she is so true to the actual woman from the documentary that like Aaron Davey, who does a, who I still think does a lovely job as little Edie in the first act is like, again, you're, you're pulling something from whole cloth and then having to evolve into something that is so established in on mm-hmm. celluloid. It's a tough ask. And like, again, mm-hmm. it, it de- it's a tough ask for, for an actor and for a writer. Yeah. It's just a difficult thing to set up. So, yeah. And I, so I, I get yeah. why maybe that is like a, a quote unquote major failing of the musical that it isn't able mm-hmm. to tie, tie that thread. So as neatly as it could, but, like, but I, mm-hmm. but yeah, but second, like second act, little Edie fucking great numbers. Gotta say opening of opening <laughs> act two. Opening of Act Two, revolutionary costume for today. Very again, like I, I know I'm gonna keep calling this score very Sondheimy, but like it is, like it's sort of it's clearly it it's that school of musical theater songwriting. Yeah, I mean, if we talk about Sond, like if we want to dig into and justify the use of the word Sondheimy, it's that he's very much like form dictates content. Like yes. all the songs feel like the characters would be singing them, and it feel like it feels like this is the way in which they would be singing them. Yes, um, so it makes sense. Um, and I agree. I agree with your, I also want to say, I agree with your, your point about the, um, about like how they use the fourth wall and how they work the Maisel stuff in, because it's like having now rewatched the documentary and then reread the script, like why didn't they just put the Maisels in it? Because so much It'd be of fascinating, my, yeah. my read of the thing, and I get why they like, I get the, why they, I get why they didn't in the sense that like they said, like, you know, the relationship with the audience is different when it's, you know, they're literally reacting to the audience. Although, again, it is inconsistent because some stuff they say to the Maisels is given to Jerry. Some of yeah. the stuff they say is just to themselves because it isn't a consistent fourth wall. But the other thing is that, like, my read of the – and this may be different for your mileage, but my read of the documentary is that, like, they are very performative people and they work best in front of an audience. And so what makes the documentary so interesting to me, like, why it why it resonates for me – is because to me it is the story of two people who have been denied an audience for like 20 years finally getting two people come in who are like really interested in everything they have to yeah. say and it just it just gushes forth like they just can't they literally can't ev- avoid performing anymore because they finally have that audience and i don't get that same desperation in the musical because there are moments where like they're acting the same way but they're supposed to be private like they're not supposed to have an audience watching yeah. them and that to me doesn't work it or at least it doesn't it doesn't have the same impact as the documentary because it paints the idea that like audience or no this is just what they're like as opposed to the documentary which is very clearly like this is the first time they've had an audience in so long and they are going to milk it and that's where the truth comes out is that we find what they do 
in that situation. I would have. I would be. I would have been curious to see if they had played with the idea of there being an audience more. You know, like her mm. acting, little Edie acting as more of a like a narrator to the audience, sharing this with the audience. Uh, performing taking suggestions. Yes, taking like, yeah, fucking sheer madness yeah. style, taking suggestions <laughs> from the audience. Because it's also because Big Edie does it too. Like she has lines that are directly to the yeah, audience. Yeah, a few. Yeah, not um, as much, but yes, a few. Um, but yes, but I yeah, do. Again, it's com- it's confusing how they do but it. I w- but I would yeah. say like my favorite songs are in the second act. Like I love Revolutionary Costume for today. I love Cake I- the Cake mm. I Had. Um, I do really like Jerry Likes My Corn. It's a very sweet song. I- <laughs> I still hold that I think it's thematically one of the stronger songs in the show. Yeah. I think that it really is a good, it's a great example of how to take the subject matter that you're working with and f- discover where and how to musicalize it. Um, it's good. And, and I will say, yeah, so, and I would say like, you might be wondering, okay, well, what are all the actors from the first act doing now that we're in the second act? So yeah, so Brooks, yes, like you, like you said, Brooks is retconned that either his father or grandfather uh, is the butler in the first yeah. act, but now he is a character who doesn't, ha- I mean, he doesn't really appear a lot in the movie. He doesn't do much. He doesn't do yeah. much. He has this like very strange moment with Little Edie at the end of this act, which, I whatever, it happens. Um, but yeah, he's around. Um, I do think it's kind of hilarious that they have uh, Jack Kennedy or Joe Kennedy playing Jerry. Playing great, Jerry. Great. I think that's a smart Mwah, choice. Chef's kiss to that moment, um, that choice of casting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the others are sort of like a weird, like some, there are like some like on moments where they are like an ensemble. There's a song called Entering Grey Gardens, which... So it's my least favorite song. I just I don't think it's just a good song. Mm-hmm. Um, I I get its function, but just for me, I just like it's usually the one that I skip every time I'm listening to this. Mm-hmm. Um, they they act as an ensemble during the house we live in, which is her big flag number. That, again, she does for Jerry. She doesn't do it for the audience. Um, yeah, she she takes these other characters and uses them as yeah, sort of like Maisel's stand-ins, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. I would say like the ensembles. For for my money, their best use in the second act is the, Norm, the Norman Vincent Peale number, um, "Choose to Be Happy." Mm-hmm. Um, again, which I I think is a very inspired choice to musicalize this moment of them listening mm-hmm. to him on the radio and then turning it into this big churchy number, um, this sort of like church choir number. Um, and they act as the and uh, Norman Vincent Peale is played by the actor who plays the major in the first act. Um, I think I think mm-hmm. it's a lovely song. I really love uh, Bruce Coughlin's uh, orchestrations for that number. Um, you have little the actor actor who played Little Edie in the first act singing a solo mm-hmm. in that song. And again, yeah, it's a, a song called "Choose to Be Happy," coming at the worst possible moment uh, for this character mm-hmm. with her like own personal reckoning. Um, and then and around the world is a pretty song as well. It's. Uh, Again, also, there's it's I don't know, it, it that it's kind of seems like a song that was scrapped from Follies. I don't know. Um, it sort of has that it has that <laughs> energy to it. Um, but mm. then, yeah, you end you end with again this sort of this manufactured moment of little Edie leaving. She's packed her bags. Mm-hmm. She, also, I will say also saddest thing about the musical: no cats, no actual cats. <laughs> No raccoons. <laughs> no raccoons. No real cats. Should have been a whole number. I mean, you are. You did jump over the fact that, like, in entering Gary Gardens, the ensemble. Are cats. Oh, sure. Like, yes, that is fair. Cats. Thank you. Yes. 
um, who are going around. They meow and stuff. It's not quite cats, but it's like um, I, not quite I miss that. Cats, Do they have like, costumes? No, it's just them. No, they're just in gray. Because it's sort of in the... What is the stage direction of the musical? Because it's like, they're ghosts, but they're also cats. They're it's ghost like, cats. That sounds like a great musical. Ghost, I'm here for it. It could be cats. a sequel to Cats. Yeah, here it is. Could be. The young Edie, this is the stage direction for when they enter. Whoa, I just, I just oh, lost it. Sorry. Ignore my this. God. Um, I know, I'm terrible. Um, but yes, you're right. In Entering Gary Gardens, okay. they are essentially... Like, they are the cats. They are inhabiting the cats. So this... This is the stage direction for at the beginning of the song when everyone enters. It's young Edie appears, followed by all the former inhabitants of Grey Gardens dressed in shades of grey. They are memories that inhabit the house, dot, 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 and also cats. Well, that's so just, that's, that's Doug Wright just having fun with the stage direction as well. But, oh, it's, a, it's him owning the fact that it's theater, like 100%. Yes. That should be a voiceover the, the, line. <laughs> the, best, the best moments in the, in the second act for using the ensemble are when they are, when they are basically filling out Allowing the audience to see the moments the way that the Beals are seeing sure. them, like I, for me, for me, the best moment, of, the best use of the ensemble act two is the house we live in because that that staging of it is what is going through Little Edie's head in the movie when she's for doing sure, it. Like, yes. that's what she's seeing and the way she feels. And I do feel that the Norman Vincent Peale bit is the same way. And the the double casting of having the younger version of her play the soloist is just it's so good. Like I, I mean, again, I think that the casting is sort of locked into the way they did yeah. it as far as what you're doubling because it, it thematically it makes sense why they're doing things. Um, I also want to jump in and say that the Norman Vincent Peale bit is also interesting because I think that the... Um, it's in the movie, and it actually comes way earlier in the, in the documentary. Yes, it does. In that it's, it's much closer to the first act. I know that the first act means a different thing here. But um, it's also interesting because the, the song Choose to be Happy is much closer to like the power of positive thinking and like the version of Norman P- Vincent Peale that we know or like the version of him that's widely known. But the I actually found that when I listened to it again in the documentary, it's the the quote he uses in the documentary, like the bit they're listening, it feels almost like it feels more insightful to, or not insightful, but like, what's the word? Not like, it's more cutting. Like it feels like it hurts them sure. more. I wrote it down. It is, uh, this is the one that he actually says in the movie. It's, I think it would be a good idea if every, I think it would be a good idea if every day, every individual look at himself in the mirror earnestly and ask the question, who am I? Am I a weak person? Am I a defeated person? Am I an inferior person? Not at all. I am a child of God and I was intended to get on top of things and I was intended to stay there. And that to me feels like much more of like an indictment of, because you can hear, and for the second half of that, it's a, it's a close up in the documentary on Big Edie, like looking down at the, (laughs) at the bed. And that to me is like, that's the whole thing. Like that's the whole documentary for me or like a large chunk of it. And so I feel like that's, well, I don't disagree with the idea that I don't disagree with what they did with that number. I, I miss that element yeah. of the, of the documentary. I mean, it's, I mean, I'd say like, again, especially because it sits in such a different place in the film, I guess I, I, I appreciate <laughs> the sort of them using it as inspiration, but I, yeah, I think they sort of, they have to make it work for the, the narrative that they are constructing in the second act, right? Like they, it's... And yeah, because they're building a different, they're building a different story in the musical yes. version. So yeah, so we so. have this manufactured moment of little Edie leaving and she's packed up and ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, she sings mm-hmm. the song Another Winter in a Summer Town, which 
I think it's gorgeous. I think it's a gorgeous number. Did you see? I I sent a link before this. You sent me the the like weird jazz <laughs> cover of it. It's like there's uh, this. I found what a choice. I, I was well, I was just like I was curious. I like searched like on like iTunes or whatever. I was just like, are there any other versions mm. of the song? Because I just I'd love to hear like another actor singer because I associate it so much with Kristen Ebersole, and I just. It really does feel like it, it feels tailor-made for like a 54 below Feinstein's cabaret. Like it's like, oh, let me whip out the really sad one at the very yes. end to really but you know, this, show that I this, can act. This it's, band's called No Kids sings it on like some Christmas compilation album. And it's like, it's, I mean, yeah, it sounds like a, it sounds like an indie song or like a jazz indie song. It's And it's like, like it's so much more up-tempo. It's fascinating. I was just, I was just like, what a find! Who knew that this this band's was just like, let's do a cover of this song, um, this like fucking depressing like woman reckoning with leaving her life behind number. It's I like that the the impetus for it aside from just thematically the whole the whole documentary. There's a line in the documentary where she says like they can see the idea is there's this image that keeps copying up in the documentary that like even though everything is so overgrown in the in the the trees and the bushes around their house, there's still like a, there's a thin line of the ocean that they can still see yeah. over the course of all that. And like, that's the thing that little, that big Edie is holding on to. And at one point, like she's talking about, I don't know the actual quote, but she's like talking about it. And then, um, little Edie jumps in and she's like, yeah, there's, we're going to have another winter here soon. And that's the quote that they, they spin into the title of this musical. And the idea of like tying that to like, it's winter and it's a summer, like it's supposed to be a town that has, yeah, summer constantly like that like that oh it's just a really good like pulling of that it's a very smart like choice to pull that one specific quote out and be like that's the center of and this. i will say mo- like, the, the most of the songs especially in the second act are pulled from moments in the film like that like which mm-hmm. i mean good on them yeah for like actually finding like this direct inspiration and again it, it it's yeah in a in an adaptation from a documentary where you want to try and stay true as much to reality as possible, I like I I do applaud them mm-hmm. for like finding musical moments that aren't tied like yeah either like directly to quote usually directly related to quotes or just directly related to mm-hmm. these moments. But yeah, it's it's just a lovely song and a sad song, um, and yeah, like you said, it's a, like yeah these revolutionary costume for today is this padder song. It stay it, for the most part stays like within like a very limited range. Um, it like it's very conversational, and like I think it, yeah like the act, as the act builds up yeah it gets to this moment like you said where she is justified in singing the song to the rafters like she is at a Feinstein's Fifty Four Below cabaret like it's yeah. <laughs> it, it builds up to that uh, uh, yeah it's great song lovely song but then yeah she she doesn't leave she's trapped. In the birdcage, she and she goes back, and there's a, a quick little reprise of the girl who has everything. Who, of course, the final lyric of that song, um, she's the girl who has everything, but time. Sad show, sad fucking show. <laughs> uh, I mean, suitable for a sad documentary. I, would I know. Suppose. I mean, I guess it. There are different people who don't see it as, as. I mean, I don't, I don't think that it's a depressing documentary, but it certainly is like a. It's weighty, and I think that the musical manages to to land that ending very well. And part of that, admittedly, if you watch the bootleg, that's that's Ebersole. Like the fact that she takes so much time to really calculate the decision to go back yeah. at the end, and there's so much dead space. I love. I mean, as a director, I just love like leaving big big sections of silence because it's it when you use it correctly, and that's a moment I think where they really do use it correctly. 
it's just it can devastate an audience and i think that they do a good job of just the moment the moment it really is it's 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 tie i tie it to because it's another like record-based ending of a show and it's the end of drowsy chaperone which is the end where he's like where he makes the decision to be like because he he has the whole thing up to the end and then like the audio cuts out on the last note and then he like it comes back up at the end and there's a moment where he just like he shuts the record case at the very end like right before he sings the final as we stumble along that's acapella and doesn't have the backing behind it and that's a similar situation of her being like i am going to put this record on and i'm going to drop it in there and then this music comes in and just taunts her with this this past that she had um ah it's a real solid ending it's i mean i mean especially Um, in a theater you know where like when you leave a moment, I would say, especially in a Broadway theater, you leave a moment of silence. Mm-hmm. I, you know, like for the most part, Broadway musicals they they chug along. There's rarely moments of silence. Mm-hmm. They are like built to be flashy and entertaining and saying or singing something mm-hmm. at all possible moments. And when you have this moment of just like silence contemplation, the the audience is just like, okay. What's gonna mm-hmm. like that? We're just we're just wait, we're waiting, and so, and it pulls you in even mm-hmm. more. Just being like, okay, when is the thing gonna happen? When is the thing gonna happen? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's so much the if I can push back a little. I don't think it's so much like the structure of Broadway musicals because there are Broadway musicals that have a lot of um, that have space or leave for, emptiness for sure. and like have that that moment. Um, I think what it really is because I agree with you that it, it stands out, and the reason it is is because if you watch the documentary or if you watch the whole second act. They don't. They, there is no show. Sure, yeah. Like, you get some silence in the documentary when you get like outside shots of the house, but then it's like it's constantly like you hear. I mean, they do this actually very well in the musical. You hear like, you know, Big Edie yelling from up upstairs, and then you get like Little Edie responding, and it's just a yeah. constant back and forth. Like, there's so much that's just this them, you know, talking with each other, bickering with each other. So then when you get this moment where it's not only just that Little Edie is silent, but that there's no response from the mother yeah. to fill that silence. That to me is where it really because there is in the musical they have right before that final Zach's moment pulling out the script there again. Is, I think, there is a line it's, I have it with me. <laughs> yeah, during the whole because she finishes she finishes the song and then Edith who's you know big Edie in here she has one two three yeah three she has three different lines after the song is over before little Edie chooses to go mm-hmm. back. And then there's, but then what they added in the Broadway version, again, I don't know if it's grief, I don't know, or grief, I don't know if it's ever soul, whatever, but they added like a fourth moment that is like line, 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 lack of a line. And that's when little Edie goes yeah. back. And that's a really like solid use of silence yeah. there. Ah, oh, it's, again, I'm, it, I, th- I think there's, I think there's some good stuff. I'd, I'd say it's a, I would say it's a good show. Like, I, I come down on the line of, like, mm-hmm. I think it's a good show. I think it's a good musical. I mm-hmm. I, I do question... I, I still have, like, again, podcast that loves questions. I still... I'm curious <laughs> about... I, I think it is still so tied to the documentary. I think it is... It's... Hmm. I would say, like, arguably even more than something that, like, Legally Blonde the musical, which I think can exist outside of one's enjoyment of the film. I feel like Grey Gardens, I mean, and I, I I, admittedly knew about the musical more before I knew about the movie. Um, mm. I don't know. I feel like it is, I mean, especially, I mean, at least in the Broadway production, I feel like its iconography is so tied to the reality. But also maybe that just comes with being a, a show based on a documentary. 
you want to honor the tr- mm-hmm. the truth of that filmmaking as much as possible. Whereas if you're being adapting from a fictional film, you know, you, ideally you you go wild, you go hog wild with with the choices you make. I'm I'm curious, sort of, mm. when you are adapting a documentary to stage, how truthful do you want to be? to the truth of that story that was previously documented. I, I don't think there's a wrong answer. I just think it's something to to ruminate on when you are adapting a document. I mean, and we see this all the time, right? There are so many fucking, like, Man on Wire was adapted into The Walk, and uh, Marwin Cole mm-hmm. was adapted into Welcome to Marwin, uh, just to bring up two random examples. Um, but <laughs> Two random examples that you have no particular... No animosity to no absolutely not i I actually like the walk more than i think a lot of people do but that i'm a fucking weirdo um but but yes but like there is still like it is not like an uncommon trend to adapt a documentary into a fiction narrative whether it be a film a feature film or whether it be a stage show so but i'm just i think it is Mm -hmm. just something that i think people need to think on when they do it it's like how much how much are you going to be precious with the thing that you are adapting? And I, and I get wanting to be precious mm-hmm. with this material because of just who these people are and just the, the general tragedy of these, of these women's lives. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something to be said for the fact that it is a, I mean, in a, in a Broadway production, especially in a premier Broadway production, like there is a certain amount of um, fidelity to the source material that is sort of built into it. I mean, like you said, I think it's not just like, there is an element of it that's like, I want to respect the source material, but there's also an element of it like, there is an IP. There is, yes. a, there is a vision of this. People are going to walk out. When Ebersole walks out at the beginning of Act 2, she is wearing, like, point for point, exactly the thing that she's wearing in the documentary because she has to be. Yeah. Like, not just because she has a song about what it is, but, like, like people expect it. People really expect it to look like the documentary. Yeah. And I do think that now that the rights are out and more people can do it, I think that it is. it will be interesting to see if other productions of it start to bend away from that model yeah. and start to take the script on a script level, because you certainly can. I think that the whole, the thing that I like about theater as opposed to film is that, I mean, they both have their strengths, but one of the things I really like about theater is that when you are doing separate productions of the same script, you're all working with the same baseline. Like you all have the same set of rules you gotta do, you gotta deal with as opposed to like when you're doing a film remake, generally you don't use the same script. Like you, you yeah. take your own, you take your own uh, view on the thing, and that that plays in at every level of the production. But with a with a play like these these rules that were put together in this particular script by uh, by Wright, Frankel, and Corey, like that is all you have to adhere to. You could ignore the documentary if you wanted to, if you wanted to tell that story. It just depends on like how you want to adapt, or if you or how if you, you wanted to make a really good remake, you could just like out, like you could find like a villain from a Disney movie and just be like, oh, I wonder like what her backstory is like. I think that would be fascinating to explore in a feature <laughs> film, especially one famous for killing puppies. Yeah, you know, listen, that's probably listen, the one we, we really want to just listen. We know that Cruella Deville is evil, but why? But why? I really want to get into that story. No, the nations killed her do, mother. I am fascinated about it. Really. <laughs> I really, I really will be. I will be seeing it. I don't know. It doesn't. It, the the trailer does not list if it's like going to be on Disney Plus. I assume it would release on Disney Plus because I don't think they'll have movie theaters by May. But like, I will watch it. Like, I hate the fact that I will watch it, but I will one hundred percent watch that. Movie. I like Craig Gillespie. Um, I will watch it. That's the only reason I'm watching it. But it's mm-hmm. uh, whatever. That's a whole other rant. I wish Craig Gillespie could just make a <laughs> twisted. Uh, movie with Emma Stone that doesn't have to be about Cruella Deville. Either way, putting yeah. a Either stopping way. that. Of course, anyway. 
Um, uh, is there anything? Yeah, is there anything else that you have to say about Grey Gardens in general? Um, <laughs> um, in general, I think that with um, uh, one of my opinions about like depictions. I mean, and I, I I come into this with a little bit of bias because this is something that I worked on as my like senior thesis in college was depictions of real people on sure. stage. And the thesis that I ended up landing on was that like there is only so far that you can get on a script level with representing the real person. And the rest of that is incumbent on the director and the actor in subsequent productions of the show to lock in what that real version and I'll is. Quick, yeah, and I'll, I do I'll, think that it's... Yeah, it's I, was, I was just going to quickly jet in and say you recently directed a production of The Laramie Project, which is sort of like, again, a, a, recently, a seminal piece of documentary theater. Yes, I recently... My most recent project was a, a radio play of The Laramie Project. The cast for that production, it was at a youth theater, so the cast for that production was ages 11 to 19. Um, so none of them, and I, and that was completely gender blind casting for the most part. Um, there were a couple that I locked into particular ones because I felt it was important. But, um, so we had like Doc O'Connor, if you know, who's like a 56 year old, like cab driver in that movie was, or in the movie, in the script was, um, was played by like a 19 year old, uh, female performer and nailed it. She did a great job. And that's because we were able to like lock into the truth of what that character mm-hmm. is. And ultimately she could still do it. And I think that ultimately when it comes down to something, again, it's important that like for a Broadway production, generally considering and for a world premiere especially one directed by michael greif you're gonna you're gonna lean towards a more that's not like a yeah, criticism, yeah, yeah. just like you're gonna lean towards trying to represent the person as accurately as possible especially when you have the weight of like not only is this one of the best known documentaries ever but it's also the first musical based on a documentary ever so like you want to be honor you want to honor that material um I agree with you on the concept that, like, I do think it's a solid... I think it's a good musical, ultimately. I also think it's a flawed musical. I think that there are some things that just because of what they are trying to do with the material... And it is a hugely ambitious project to, like, add this whole first act onto it and just, like, try to tackle something like a documentary. Especially a documentary that centers on people like this. Like, it's just not easy to to get into the minds of someone like this. It's a very complex thing to do. Um, But ultimately, I think it is an ambitious musical. I think it's a flawed musical. But ultimately, I think it is a musical that is worth existing and should be produced more because the question of like how do you represent these people in production is not one that can be answered unless you're doing it like unless you take that risk and try to do that you you take up that challenge of representing these people on yeah. stage um so i do I, i'm in support of people doing it more because i'm important i'm in support i'm in support of people doing it more because it is flawed and because it requires a director and an actor to answer the questions that the script leaves um, I will, this is something I'll. And while I do wish on. that, I wish that Wright and Franklin and Corey had locked down a little bit more <laughs> of it. Like I do think that there are some things that are that are missing that would help people. Um, but I do think that it is it is a musical that is worth yes. existing and should be. I'll say this often on this podcast. I I always prefer a a a, a flawed product where someone is trying something new than a safe product that is fine. Like I'm I'm always I'm always for risk. Mm-hmm. Whether you tr- whether you succeed or fail, I'm always for you trying something new. And they tried it. You know what? That's what you can say about Wright, mm-hmm. Franklin, and Corey. They tried it. Um, speaking mm-hmm. of trying it, as always, uh, Zach, we end every episode with a question that we ask our guest, and it is a very important question. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, if you could adapt any movie into a musical that has not already been adapted, what movie would you choose? So I have a cop-out answer first. Again, I thought really hard about this because it, I didn't. I thought I would have a really clear answer, and I don't. I have a cop-out answer for this, which doesn't really count, and that is that I would like a stage adaptation of the film adaptation of The Sound of Music. 
Okay. Um, which is that I want a stage okay. adaptation that is closer to because the film adaptation of the sound of music is much better than the stage version. Like they just they fixed things, they moved things around, they edited the script, they added things. Like it's just a better story than the stage version is. And I want them to just like release that. You're, version. you're so right. That is that is a cop out that, answer. <laughs> that has the replay. Yeah, it's a cop out answer. But I, you're giving me a platform. I want to. I want to voice that. Um, I thought real hard about this one, and I'm sure that I, you know, a week from now, I'm going to think of a better one, and I'll email you and be like, oh no, it's this. It's actually this. But at present, if I had to pick a musical that I would like to see adapted into a Broadway musical, it's Lilo and Stitch. Great. Good answer. Yep. And the thing is, I the, my my caveat to that is I don't necessarily want Disney to do it. Disney has done things before where they've like, look, her, not Hercules, but um, with Pinocchio and with like Jungle Book and stuff, where they've like licensed it out yes. to someone else and be like, you go do this. We're gonna give you permission to do it. Like, you go, you know, take this. So ideally, like they do that with some company that like, you know, is more. I mean, like like the Goodman or Huntington or something. That's like, well, maybe not those that scale or something, but like whatever. They they go find a company that is interested in telling this story and like interested in, in, ad- in figuring out how the story work lives on stage and then they do it. But I think, I mean, I would argue, this is my, my argument is that I believe that I, my personal favorite Disney movie is Lilo right. and Stitch, like within the original animated canon, it's really good. But I think that what makes it really good aside from the fact that the characters are really interesting and I think it would, you know, it would, it would play well in a Broadway musical space because it is very text heavy. Like it's very much about the dialogue, the characters, like it doesn't have so much like, it has the fantastic set pieces of like it's you know it's in Hawaii and there's the aliens coming in and stuff, but like the core of that is very like a very human conflict Absolutely. in that movie. So I think it plays well when you put it on stage. Um, and the other thing about it is that I feel like it's there was an opportunity. My initial thought is like, well, maybe it's a play with music instead because you have like all the Elvis music and then you have all the Hawaiian yes. music, so it feels like you kind of mix between the two. Um, but I think there is something to the idea that like. Um, there's many different worlds of like performance within, I mean, it is a, it is a movie about performance. It's about like Nani, like trying to like the performance that she does is like, you know, Hawaiian, the Hawaiian identity that is performative because it's like partially for tourists and like the reliance on the tourist industry. And there's like Stitch trying to like act like he's a dog and act like he's not a monster. And then there's like all the, the things that break down like that. Like, I think there's a lot to run with there. Um, and I think that the idea of like some of the songs, like uh, there being a mix between like the Hawaiian songs that are much more like true to true to form and like true about like who the identity of the people is. And then you have like the Elvis and maybe like the more chintzy songs that are like more on that end yeah. of it. Um, I think that's something that would really be interesting to play with within the musical sphere. Again, it may result in a product, but I mean, like Ray Gardens is like flawed, but really interesting. Yeah. And that is something I would be very into. Cause the last thing I want, I have no, per- I want to be very clear. I have no personal vendetta against Disney musicals. I know a lot of people are like, oh, Disney, like they're ruining Broadway. It's all corporate, whatever. Like, I think that every now and then they can get a really solid. Oh, we, we're going to do a whole, we're um, going to do a whole mini series on them. Oh yeah. We're going to, we're going to dive into <laughs> that beast. Um, that is exciting. Cause I have, I, I, I have, I have an opinion on what the best Disney screen to stage adaptation. Great. Off, off mic, I'll ask you um, and we'll probably bring you on for that episode. But anyway, continue about Lilo and Stitch. Um, but I do think I would love to see Lilo and Stitch. I think that it's, uh, it would be, it's not, I think, the first Disney movie that I would want to see adapted, but it is one of the ones that I would like if it was done right. And if they really got an, a, a director and a team in there that like knew how to respect the story and had some creative ideas on how to do the, the aliens, which I imagine is it's puppetry. Like it's sort of Lilo, it's sort of Lion King ish. Yeah. Um, I would be very interested in seeing that. It's, it's 
a good movie, and I think it would be a, it would translate well. Hell to yeah, stage. we've been getting some really inspired answers for this question. I'll tell you that. I've been honestly, they, they sound like mm-hmm. they're honestly more inspiring than a lot of the episodes that we are covering on this podcast. <laughs> Well, I mean, like you, I mean, like you said, like a lot of these musicals. I mean, Grey Gardens is actually an exception in this regard, and a lot of these musicals come from the owner of the IP, yeah. like contracting writers in to, to write the thing. But everything that you're asked, you're all of your guests are artists, so we're coming in with our perspectives of like what we would most want For to sure. see on stage. And I will say, I will say that one of the other ones, because I literally mentioned it in the Ratatouille video that I just released, um, if I had to pick a Pixar film that I'd want to see adapted into a musical, it would be Wall-E. Yeah. Um, give, can you give the can you give think, like the, the the sixty seconds pitch on Wally as a musical? Um, mostly, I mean, it's kind of like oh god, I hate this comparison now that I think about it. But it's the one I can think of, which is it's like Contact, and that it's like it's mostly wordless. It's mostly dance, and like maybe there's some like there's a little bit of like you know there's singing, and it's like it's a little bit more heady. But like I find it to be kind of the opposite of Lilo and Stitch, and that it's a very non-dialogue heavy musical. It's a lot of music. It's a lot of dance. Um, I imagine that it's, you know, it's puppetry, but you do it very yeah. well. Um, so have you ever seen, have you ever heard of, um, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's puppetry. So I think you understand what I'm getting at, but like there is, um, there's a show that went up at Bard Summerscape. It was actually a year after Oklahoma premiered, uh, the, yeah. the new one. Um, they did a show called, uh, uh, Demolishing Everything with Amazing Speed. No, I love that title, though. First of all, one of my favorite titles ever. It's so cool. It was this series of four futurist puppet plays that were like, it was these plays that were written in Italy at like around the turn of the century, like the previous century, but they hadn't been discovered until recently. And so then they did a, they, they were written as just plays, but the guy who found them was a puppeteer. So he was like, I'm going to do them with puppetry and then we can like, you know, show the violence that's in them in a very like stylized yeah. way. And... It's the kind of thing where, like, they're very abstract puppets. Like, you can tell that they're humanoid, obviously, but, like, it's very angular and very, like, you know, kind of art deco-y in design. Um, and you can see the performers. Like, they're, they're it's all hand thing. It's not, like, marionetted or anything or on sticks. Like, they're literally, like, just have their hands around the feet and they're moving them around and stuff. So you can see the people doing it. And then you watch them, like, puppet them all through all these, like, acts of violence throughout the play. And it's, like, it's a very weird, like, surreal thing to watch. But I feel like the, the Wally musical is in a similar position where, like, you don't just have the Wally robot and it looks like the Disney one and then you just move him around on stage and God forbid you don't actually do it with real robots because then it wouldn't work. But but you you see the art. Like you get to see the puppeteer behind it like moving oh, yeah. it around and like then when the humans come in I think they're also puppets. Right. Like it's, I don't know. I love that. No, I love yeah, that. It's, that's my, that wasn't, that wasn't 60 <laughs> seconds at all. But um, but it was but inspired. I, I like to see. Um, I also, but I mean, it's it's what I was. Also, when see. you compared it to Contact, I was like the Jodie Foster movie. Okay, I guess. I mean, I thought that's <laughs> what you meant too. But then I was like, oh, is there yeah, an adaptation but, of that? Because that sounds tight. But then I was like, oh no, the Stroman dance, the Susan Stroman dance show. Okay, no, the Stroman yeah. one, the one that won the. It won Tony. the Tony. Was like what on earth? Weird. Is anyway, yeah. that's a whole. That's a that's a Patreon episode. Um, Zach. It was a bad year. Thank you so much for coming on on what might Thank be you. our longest episodes. So far. <laughs> they keep getting longer. You're cutting, you're cutting parts of oh, this, yeah. right? Yes. <laughs> Good. But no, Zach, thank you so much um, for coming on. I, I knew this was going to be a, a fun uh, theater dramaturgical wonderland of an episode. Um, is there anything else uh, that you would want to plug quickly for folks? Um, I mean, I have a, I have a video series, so please go look at that. I also have a Kofi page cause I'm not necessarily looking to make like, I don't have a, I don't have anything larger cause I'm basically just looking for like tips as I continue to make videos. 
Um, but yeah, my, my YouTube channel is And Now They Sing. You can search it on YouTube. It's the first thing that comes up as far as channels when you search that. Um, I'm also on both Instagram and Twitter as at Admiral Zachbar. Um, if you want to show me, if you want to throw me suggestions for that video series. Um, I'm also writing a novel. I'm currently writing a novel. My New Year's resolution for 2021 is to finish a novel by the end of the year. So um, more information on that on both my Facebook, um, both my Twitter and Instagram as the year progresses. I am currently working on the draft of it, and I'm going to do the equivalent of a uh, NaNoWriMo in April this year. So my hope is I'll have a solid working draft by the end of oh, then. Amazing. Admiral Zachbar. That's all I really have to plug in. Admiral Zachbar is a great handle, just by the way. Good work. Um, Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you, as always, to Brian Moorhead for producing and editing the show. Thank you to Emily Harrington for our artwork. Thank you to M. Modaf and Josh Stanley for our kick-ass theme song. If you like the show, be sure to rate us, review us, subscribe for future episodes. Follow us on Instagram and the Hell site Twitter, at Movie the Musical. Uh, if you want to support the podcast and get some sweet bonus content, go to patreon.com slash musical and consider becoming a monthly member. We are covering movie musicals on the Patreon, as in actual movies that are musicals. So be sure to check those out. Keep on singing. Da-da-da-da-da.